for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Every well-rounded strength and conditioning program has two distinct elements. At Power Athlete HQ, we refer to those experiences as science class and birthday party. Enter Jay Dawes, PhD, the ultimate combination. Hear how the vice president of the NSCA meandered through his career, educating himself and in turn his athletes. He is now the coordinator of athletic performance at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs and has the performance industry leaders on speed dial. Today, we get an inside look at what it's like creating studies, sifting through the research findings, and maybe or maybe not getting published. Like any labor of love, the science of performance is a long road with its unique challenges. Hear how Jay maintains the integrity of his research through ethical practices like communicating his expertise to the coaches involved. Dawes believes that it's more important to save an athlete from a foreseeable injury than obtaining a completely uninterrupted study. If you're an aspiring performance academic, this interview with Jay is a must listen. This is episode 172. Our Athlete Nation, it is that time again. You're tuning into Power Athlete Radio, the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Say it Ma- again, Luke. Say it the again. premier podcast <laughs> in strength and conditioning. Honestly, many have likened us to what Dippin' Dots is to ice cream, the ice cream of the future. What are Dippin' Dots? You don't know what Dippin' Dots It's because it's, it's the ice cream of the future. They're little frozen pellets of ice cream. Dude, yeah. well, I'll get you some it dipping seems, dots and blow it, your it mind. It seems like a lot of work for this ice cream. That's the point. This is a lot of work to bring this information <laughs> <laughs> to, to uh, our I, audience. Was that hyperbole? Yes. <clears throat> I thought it was a hyperbole. Oh. Hyperbole. No? I'm clearly the, the idiot in the room. Well, you <laughs> are a computer science major, so. But, uh, all right, people, quick public service announcement before we get going. If you're listening to this and you have not heard about our Toes Forward giveaway going on on Instagram, Hit up powerathletehq.com slash toesforward to find out what swag you can win by simply snapping a picture of your feet toes forward. Uh, it's over like $3,000 in gifts, dude. It's pretty amazing, actually. Stuff keeps showing up here at the office. Yeah, and John I, keeps trying to open oh, it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Every time something comes, I'm like, oh, what is that? Remember when I opened up and you're like, no, 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 no. It's for toes forward. Remember like, when the skull candy stuff came? You're like opening it and I like dove and knocked it out of your hands. Well, I, like, I looked and I was like, <laughs> I better not open that. And then, uh, and then I got kind of jealous, and I just started ordering yeah, stuff it's... myself. <laughs> play with it, so Lucy, you got to order it. So uh, no, we got some pretty amazing stuff. And for the toes forward, the only thing you have to do is the release. Put your toes, put your feet nice and vertical, toes forward. Snap a picture, preferably in an interesting place. Yeah, be creative. Yeah, be creative. Right. So uh, winners gonna be selected at random, and it's a one grand prize winner. What else do I want to talk about, Tex? Uh, Wade's army. Wade's army. Uh, we're in the midst of our fundraising efforts for Wade's Army. Uh, I'll let you, I'll hand it off to you guys. You guys are the, the honchos there. So uh, we've had an amazing campaign so far. The, again, knowledge is going to be the, the theme throughout the year, just really educating people what neuroblastoma really is. So every Friday, check for a fact graphic. And all you have to do to really help us is, is republish, repost, and spread the word on what this is. We're right at 50% of our goal. we got less than 70 days before the big Wade's Day, November 12th. And it's all it's all about passion. Yeah, I mean, with Wade Day coming, I mean, uh, years previous we've had a workout for Wade uh, to to uh, memorialize and remember uh, Wade the Bruin. But I think this year what we're going to do is we're going to offer a couple different workouts. 
so that people and everybody can get involved. You just don't have to, you know, have a heavy dumbbell and a bunch of different things. Yeah, because so, the, the original Wade's Wad is not a forgiving workout. It's a battle. Well, but. when we originally started this thing, we were trying to create <laughs> something pretty dastardly that <laughs> would punish people and help them, you know, get a little bit of sympathy, empathy, whatever you want to call it, or yeah, a little bit of suffering uh, in memory of Wade DeBrun. And now that we're looking to try to make it a bigger campaign, you know, we'll have to put together something. Uh, maybe uh, I'm going to program uh, three different options. So not only the original weight squad, but two other kind of maybe a one body weight one. Um, yeah. Great. And then maybe something where people can get out and walk a little bit. Cause, uh, last year we ended up doing a ride with, a you know, a spin studio. And then we went over to a CrossFit gym and it was, uh, pretty interesting watching people even do 10 or 15 pound single one arm dumbbell snatches. Yeah. yeah. So we'll probably try to do it. And also, um, you know, trying to get kids involved. So maybe there'll be like some burpees and some push-ups. And, some and final point with that, if you're in the DC, Virginia, Maryland area, we're heading to Laurel, Maryland jailbreak brewery on Saturday, October 1st for growlers and prowlers. We got some limited edition Wade's army growlers. So we got this year's nerves of steel logo on there and we're just going to do a prowler workout and then drink out of the growlers, growlers and prowlers. So like can, can you drink while pushing a prowler? Uh, that's I what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, I, uh, maybe you could put somebody on the prowler and as you're pushing it, like be pouring. That's called a gargoyle. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so you crouch down like a gargoyle and drink out of the growler. <laughs> when did Tex get creative? Uh, somewhere around his hair started to look like he was uh, from that 70s show. Oh, 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 oh you got a fun project. Let's, 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 let's yeah, enough about us. So we do have a guest, <laughs> an esteemed guest here. Uh, we have Jay Dawes. Uh, Jay is the vice president of the NSC board, of, uh, is vice president on the NSC board of directors and uh, all sorts of letters I'm looking at behind his name. Uh, this guy is accomplished, man. He's right now assistant professor uh, in the Bethel College of Nursing and Health Sciences and the coordinator of athletic performance at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Uh, Jay, thanks for taking the time uh, on your Friday to, to sit with us and talk shop, man. No, guys, I definitely appreciate it. It's a uh, honor and privilege to be with y'all. So, well, Jay, hey, listen, I, I gave you know the one sentence. Give us some background. Give our listeners some background. You know, who are you? Where did you come from? What are your what's your your social security number, bank account number, <laughs> uh, things like that, man? So, give us give us the background. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, I guess the the Reader's Digest version is uh, I had a couple years in uh, college athletics and uh, enjoyed that quite a bit, but. Uh, like a lot of athletes, I ended up getting hurt about my uh, second year into it. And uh, at that point, I had to make a decision as far as what I was going to do as far as career path goes. And, uh, you know, again, it had an enthusiasm for sports, really loved the uh, aspect of getting ready for the season almost as much as I did playing. Uh, so it, it kind of was, was one of those things for me. It's kind of an easy transition into the whole strength conditioning realm. So I uh, ended up doing uh, my master's and uh, PhD at Oklahoma State University. Uh, in between there, taught at several universities, owned my own uh, training facility out of Oklahoma City for a while. Um, you know, was a uh, strength coach at a small university in Oklahoma as well. So, you know, kind of been around the block on some of that stuff. Sounds like I probably can't hold a job, but, um, <laughs> you know, been, been really fortunate. Got to work with athletes at all levels and got to be able to work with a lot of uh, people with unique needs and, and interest as well. So. So you have a very deep involvement with the NSCA. So talk us how you developed that relationship. And then, I mean, your name's on publications, your name's on books, you're, you're on the board of directors. How did that relationship develop? Yeah, yeah, man. So it was really, it was a really interesting story. So whenever I uh, went on to grad school at Oklahoma State, 
you know, we had a, uh, a program that was very uh, exercise physiology based, um, which was great. It was a fantastic foundation and, and learned an awful lot from that. But, you know, started recognizing that early on, um, my interests lied more in the sports performance arena. And uh, so one of the uh, graduate assistants I was working with, he was getting his uh, PhD there at the time. You know, I kind of explained to him, like, you know, all this is great, but I'm really looking for some things that I could use, you know, day to day with my athletes that are impact performance immediately. And uh, he threw me a strength conditioning journal. I was like, yeah, take a look at that, man. And uh, as soon as I saw it, I was hooked. So it was one of those things where, you know, with the NSCA, as far as for professional involvement, um, it really hit the nail on the head for what I was looking for uh, as a professional and what I needed to really help me grow as a professional in the area that I was focused in on. So, you know, it kind of started out there, this uh, same, same gentleman, uh, Dr. Patrick Hagerman, he was actually a uh, board of directors member of the NSC at that time. And the guy was writing books and he was a column editor in the strength conditioning journal. And, you know, it was one of those things like, you know, dude, I, I wanted to do what you're doing. And uh, so, you know, I was really fortunate. He allowed me to kind of shadow him and kind of see what he was doing. And, you know, the rest is history. Um, you know, had a really, really great career uh, as far as, you know, being involved with the NSCA. You know, started out doing some uh, local talks uh, for our state conferences and, and things of that nature, then eventually kind of progressed to the national scene and, you know, got more involved in, in that uh, capacity. And uh, then about 2007, the opportunity came along to apply for uh, the director of education job with them. And, uh, you know, somebody at the NSCA headquarters said, hey, you know, we're looking at your background and, you know, really you put the check in the box for a lot of uh, the things that our members do. So you've done some personal training, you've been a strength coach, uh, you've been an academic, you know, would you ever consider this? And uh, my first thought was, no, I don't have any interest to do that at all. <laughs> and, you know, because at that point, like, you know, we had a facility, it was roughly 6,300 square foot. We had uh, built it up in about three years from 1,200 square feet to 6,300. We we're running athletic conditioning camps, um, you know, lots of great stuff going on. I was about halfway through a PhD and, uh, you know, things were rocking and rolling. And, you know, after a little bit more conversation with my wife and, you know, some, some good friends, we, we started looking at it and, you know, realistically, the, the amount of contacts I could make at the NSCA from a professional standpoint and the growth that I would get there was more than I could get, you know, in a lifetime staying where I was. Um, so we basically took the jump. I went ahead and applied and uh, really still not sure how I got the job. Uh, looking at, I know some of the guys who um, actually applied for the position that I was kind of in the uh, final runnings with. And, you know, these guys are, are heroes of mine. Like they were really, really dialed in and, and just great coaches and great professionals. Uh, but fortunately, I got the opportunity to do that for about three and a half years. And, uh, you know, kind of as I, uh, you know, progressed in the NSCA and, and in that role, it, it was one of those positions where, you know, from there, the only next move was to would be like an executive director position. And uh, my skill set definitely did not match that. And that kind of subsequently took me out all the things I loved about the profession as far as, you know, being active and engaged and things of that nature. So. Uh, during that time frame, I actually finished up my PhD and uh, made the choice to go back to uh, academia and went down to uh, Texas A&M Corpus Christi for about three and a half years. And uh, while I was down there, did some independent consulting with uh, you know different athletes and different sports, uh, but also was fortunate to get to work with the uh, Corpus Christi Police Department as well. So I uh, you know did some consulting with them. I got to get pretty involved with them. Uh, similarly, when I was at the NSCA, we started something called the Tactical Strength Conditioning Program which uh, really is aimed and focused at trying to help your first responders. You know, so really trying to uh, you know, get them dialed in with um, 
conditioning and strength techniques that are more consistent with improving occupational performance instead of just general fitness and wellness. And uh, so did that for about three and a half years, uh, moved back to uh, Colorado Springs and uh, started working at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Uh, again, primary areas of research here have been really in the tactical strength conditioning area and athletic performance. And uh, then uh, recently, uh, about a year ago, I was hired as the uh, coordinator for athletic performance for our university as well. So, you know, right now we get to uh, help coordinate the strength conditioning programs for our, all our intercollegiate sports and, and get to do that. And uh, as of last July, was very fortunate to get elected to the board of directors of the NSCA. And uh, currently, like you guys said, I get to serve as the vice president for the next year. So, you know, it, it was real funny. It's like, man, I guess, you know, Donald Trump's in the election and I got to be vice president. So, you know, uh, it's hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> We're in interesting times, right? Yeah, yeah. It very much is. <laughs> yeah, there, there's an old proverb we always joke about me. You live in interesting times. I don't know if it's actually a good thing or a bad thing. Right. <laughs> it goes both ways. Yeah, it does. It does. We are yeah, right. So the, the opportunity for on the academic side to work and have impact and really implement a program with athletics that this is new to me. This is rare. So how did that come about? And have you ever seen any other schools that take that same approach? You know, there's, there's a handful of schools that do do it. Um, not very many. We're, we're kind of the unicorns. Uh, we're very fortunate as far as that goes, because, you know, I think for me, uh, work with our students, um, especially in our graduate program, it's really important for me to be actively involved and engaged. You know, and I think that's one of the things that I feel very fortunate about is, you know, on one hand, I get to be Coach Jay. On the other hand, I get to be Dr. Jay and, and really trying to blend those two things together uh, in order to make, you know, the, the best practitioners that we can. You know, so we've really taken a little bit more of a, uh, a sports science approach to it. You know, so really trying to blend the, the academic side with the actual hands-on, boots-on-the-ground, you know, strength coaching aspects. So, like I said, there's a few programs out there that do it, but we're really fortunate. There's not very many that have that, uh, that same approach. Yeah, I've, I've read a lot just of uh, coaches' perspective and how they take training, develop a theory, and then look to science to almost either affirm or just kind of redirect that pipeline. And then sure. scientists take that approach of they have the unfortunate, they have to look at one thing. Right. Of what is training. It's the combination of a thousand, hundred million different things to help your athletes. So I guess being in your position, you're able to, to walk us through your approach. Do you start with science and then go back to training or you start with training and then kind of uh, di divert that uh, science? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, it's funny. Like, you know, a lot of times, especially with the, you know, the mission of the NSCA, um, you know, it, the mission is to bridge the gap between science and application. And, you know, I think in a lot of cases, people view that as being kind of a one-way street where we have the science and then we apply that. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, it goes the other way around. You know, it's that coach that's got to win on Friday. You know, he doesn't have 15 years to wait, you know, to get the longitudinal research to back up what he's doing. So, you know, they, they try new things, they experiment, and all of a sudden they go, oh, wow, that seemed to work. Now, the question is, why did that work? So, you know, I think that's the thing that you'll tend to see is very rarely will research ever innovate anything. Um, a lot of times it helps to either refine a process or better explain it. You know, so kind of the approach that we take is, you know, we definitely look to the research. We definitely have an evidence-based approach to everything that we do. But also on the flip side of that is we want to make sure that we're using good scientific principles and concepts. You know, you know for instance, gravity is gravity. 
So we know if we move resistance and gravity, something's going to happen to the, the musculoskeletal system. Um, it was really funny, man, years back, uh, a gentleman, he's, he's a preeminent researcher in our profession. And the guy, he literally knows, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know. I mean, no question about it. I mean, just tons of respect. But he walked into our facility one day and he saw like the uh, TRX, like the suspension training systems. And uh, his first question was like, well, what the hell's that? And I said, well, you know, there's suspension. And this is when they first came out. That's, I'm an old guy. So, you know, when they first came out and uh, I said, well, you know, it's just a way to kind of manipulate, you know, your own body weight to get a little bit more resistance and training process. And his first question was like, well, has that been validated? And I'm like, what, gravity? Yeah, we've, we've known about it for a while. So, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it, it is one of those things where you, you want to go back to the research and you want to, um, you know, be aware of it, but you can't necessarily let yourself get hindered by not having some of that information out there as well. So, yeah. you know, it is one of those processes where it's a fine line. And you, I think the challenge is, is a lot of times in the academic setting, um, people say, well, show me the numbers, show me the research, you know, show me the study that shows that. On the flip side, you have the coach who goes to hell with all that. I don't need it. I'm seeing that in my lab. And, you know, probably the, the truth is somewhere in between those two. And really trying to marry those two things to where, you know, with that bridge that we're trying to, uh, you know, close, we actually meet somewhere in the middle on that. Well, the, uh, it always seems that's like an interesting way to try to uh, discredit anything. Oh, show me the research. And you're like, dude, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, and going back to the coach's mentality, like well, they want to win, right? Well, no, but I mean, there, there's a lot of observational things that we've seen that we know are true in the gym that I haven't necessarily, uh, you know. Found the perfect study to yeah, per substantiate it. Yeah, I mean, if. Right. If, if you try to move as fast as you can, I mean, uh, you know, certain things become very true. Like, uh, you know, Hatfield's deal with compensatory acceleration. We found that when you move faster with weights, everybody gets more explosive and stronger. And right. Happen. But if you only move light weights fast, you don't keep driving adaptation. So then you almost have to balance like, uh, you know, some form of, you know, max effort, rep max with some form of dynamic work. And you kind of get in this kind of play in the middle of it. And then you kind of, you know, it just – it becomes this like forever kind of like, you know, and, and I'm, sure, I'm sure you know this too. The analogy we use is um, like trying to tune a stereo. You have all the yeah. different views and you start kind of playing with one and like, oh, that sounds like crap. Yeah. And you kind of turn it down. But yet, but then a different sounds, song comes on. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and every person, like I, I've sat in there and tuned the EQ and been like, how does that sound? Be like, sounds great. I'm like, God, it sounds like shit to me. <laughs> you know, so, it, you know, and I always laugh when people are like, well, can you substantiate that with claims? And you're like, uh, for every piece of research that we can find, there is an equal amount refuting it in every kind Correct. of but, And then, uh, but trainers and strength coaches, your job is to just stay firm, never give the impression uh, but, of doubt, but then science is the opposite. But I mean, isn't it really easy for people that aren't very good or intuitive to always just get, well, the research doesn't prove that. And I, and I, I found people that I've, you know, we, we battled with in, in years past that want to bring that. I'm like, okay, then what do you believe in? Why, well, uh, you know, why the, the research hasn't told you what to believe in, yeah. or you just don't have have worked with enough people. I mean, I'm always most interested by some of the strength coaches. I mean, that uh, you know don't really have a classical background and just uh, you know have learned from observation. They found certain things to be true based off of the observation of athletes. And then also when you have a you know, um, and I and I do I always love the NSCA studies because it's like we found you know. 10 untrained 18 year old individuals <laughs> you're trying to like standardize this stuff. And you're like, how the fuck can you standardize for an 18 year old kid in college yeah. who's getting paid to do a study? Mm -hmm. You're like, you know, uh, what is his rest recovery? What is his food? What is it? Well, that sounds like, like a great question study? for Jay. I mean, that, you know, so I mean, that's yeah. you know, like, like that's to me is, um, 
uh, and I always let, you know, because we, we subscribe to the NCAA Journal, and I always love going through and reading the things because I, I find them interesting. And I also figure, how the fuck did somebody get funding for that? That was another thing I always think about. But I'm, I'm always like, how, how do you find an effective cross-section to test this stuff on uh, that, you know, uh, because there's so much, like the tech said, there's so many variables uh, available to these kids and for the people you're testing. So, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, I was going to say, and you know, I mean, it is that calibration process, right? So, I mean, you know, you go in, you try things, and a lot of times we do let the research guide some of that uh, intuitiveness. You know, so basically we're seeing that, you know, force velocity curve, just like you were talking about, you know, dynamic effort method and things of that nature. So we have some basic principles to look at. You know, and I always go back to, you know, some of the basic principles of resistance training and basic principle training. So, you know, specificity, overload, progression, uh, individuality, you know, all those things. If, if you can't dial it back into those, you kind of got to go, what are we doing here? You know, so it really gets down to more of a principle-based approach. And then, you know, looking at the different research that's out there to help, um, again, with those calibrations that we discussed. Going back to what you said about the, uh, you know, 18 to 22-year-old college-age type students and all the studies, yeah, it's a challenge. You know, because there's, there's a few challenges that go along with it. Like, one of the major ones is you're not going to find too many coaches who are going to let you walk into their facility and say, okay, so we're going to take half your team and weight train them, and we're going to take the other half and not do anything and see who gets better. I mean, it, it's just not going to happen. And that's kind of the challenge of, like, those control-based studies is, you know, and it, we always kind of find it here, and it's like, okay, well, we took this half of the group, and we did something, and we took this half and didn't do anything, and, oh, surprise, the group that did something did better. It's like, well, yep, that, that would make sense. So, you know, the, the challenge is, is looking at, you know, the, the populations that are being investigated, and are there things that you can take away from that or glean that may help improve performance for those other types of individual athletes. You know, to, to some extent, you know, we're all the same, but we're all different. So there's going to be some things that are going to carry over just as being humans. Um, and then we have to look at, okay, does this apply to my situation? Does this apply to my population? You know, if it doesn't 100% apply, how do I integrate that into my program to see if it's going to work? And, and again, that's the one thing I would, uh, you know, certainly advocate for is making sure that we've got those um, processes in place to make certain that we, we do have some kind of a, a framework to make our decisions. Um, you know, one of the other things we see a lot of times is you know, a lot of the research we do here, um, so as a part of my normal functions as a coordinator for athletic performance, we collect data all the time. And most of what we're doing as far as a data collection standpoint is to drive what we do as coaches. You know, so what we're really trying to do is we're trying to refine our processes and make our processes better. So, like, for instance, in our uh, – we've done our performance uh, testing for this, the season so far for most of our teams. Actually, I think baseball is going on right now, so that's our last one. Um, but, you know, we've done some different tests, like the 505 agility test, and we'll look at, you know, when they do a run-up. So normally how the 505 works is you do a 10-meter run-up, and then at the 10-meter line you've got a um, – a timing gate. So at that point, you take off as fast as you can, you hit the line, you come back, and you get the distance covered for a 10-meter expanse. So looking at that, what we do is we have them do that off the right and the left side, and then what we know from the research is, you know, if you have the discrepancy between those two sides of more than 10%, you might be more prone to injury. So what that does is that helps us go back in and say, okay, based off of this, for these athletes and for this program, it may be more beneficial to do a little bit more single leg work or to do um, more bilateral work or, uh, you know, help refine those processes. And, 
you know, there's, there are a fair number of studies out there that do look at elite level uh, athletes and performance, but a lot of the challenges that go along with those is you're going to find very few journals that will have them just for the sheer standpoint of statistically, a lot of times they don't meet significant levels, you know, cause if you got, you know, 10 athletes, the, you know, traditional statisticians can look at that and go, well, that's not enough to infer anything. But the problem is like, okay, when you're talking about, you know, 10, you know, elite level sprinters, like, you know, that's not a bad sample. When you look at the entire population, I mean, you know, how many are there in the world? So it, it is, you know, as I said before, there's kind of this rocky marriage between the, the, you know, academic and the practitioner in a lot of cases that, you know, there, you have to be aware of the different affordances that each group has. And, you know, again, from a clinical setting, you know, we, we get pushed to go get grant funding. We get pushed to um, have big sample sizes, but in the real world, you know, a large sample size, maybe 20 to 30 people, because that's the size of a team, you know? So I'm not going to have usually, you know, a couple hundred in a study because that's just not what we do. So I, I guess, I don't know if that actually answers the question or makes it worse, but. <laughs> no, no, it does. I mean, the, the, I always wonder too, uh, some of the studies I've read uh, have to do with like, you know, injury prevention. And the one that kind yeah. of kicked me a little bit was, I, I can't remember if it was with female soccer players, they were testing like, uh, different like kind of strength biases, different ratios on strength, and they went in and they did all this testing, and then they sat back and they observed, and like they were able pretty definitively to tell which girls were going to tear ACLs. And right. I remember uh, reading it and being like, how pissed would I be if I was that athlete or that coach when they were like, uh, we noticed that there was a strength deficit based off of the testing, and we projected that your athlete might tear an ACL, and we didn't say anything because we needed to keep the uh, integrity of our study. And, yeah, uh, and, and that's actually uh, that is. I'd be like. This motherfucker, you know, like, <laughs> like, like, you know, like, like to me, um, uh, you know, that type of stuff is, uh, you know, is, is, is really what the NSC should be doing. I mean, not, not only, you know, meeting, you know, bridging the gap, but also trying to improve the health and the quality and the performance of student athletes. So I wonder where you kind of like, like that to me feels like a rocky road. Well, and actually, man, it is. And I've actually had that scenario come up a few times where, you know, we, we've done some monitoring surveys with uh, some of our student athletes and, you know, some folks who are wanting to be involved with some research on it. And I said, okay, I said, but here's the challenge is just remember, if we see a kid going off the rails, like we got to step in and intervene. And they go, oh, that's going to be a problem as far as getting it published. I'm like, yeah, I understand. I said, that's why I'm telling you now is because that's, that's our challenge is, you know, from a, um, the responsibility standpoint, you know, we got to make sure that we're taking care of the athletes. And if we know that they may have a bit of known risk, we got to do something about it. You know, so in a lot of cases, you know, it's not that they're not necessarily taking proactive steps, but what they do is say, I mean, let's say you're doing your functional movement screening or, or something of that nature early on in the season or like a Y balance test. Um, we do all that with sports med here. And then we track and see what happens. You know, our, our hope is that we're completely wrong because hopefully we have intervened and we've done something that's going to make sure that they don't have that happen. And, and, and you know, quite frankly, with injury data and, and surveillance data, it's really challenging because if you do it correctly and you intervene correctly, hopefully you don't see anything. You know, so that and that's one of the things I think with, you know, especially like functional movement screen and whatnot, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, the research is a little bit sketchy on it. Well, it is and it's not, you know, to me, that's one of the things where, again, if you're using it appropriately, hopefully we do help avoid some of those injuries. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't pop and it shows that it predicts. So, you know, it, it is a very fine line. And like, so, you know, from the academic side, I see the argument, but then again, when you're entrenched in it on a daily basis as a coach, you know, you also got to see their viewpoint on it as well. Right. So 
And, and like I think for me, again, that's why I don't know that I'd ever be 100% happy just doing one because I feel like one balances out the other one pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I definitely want to highlight just one thing that you just brushed over and then principles and biological laws. Like that's where I feel based off a lot of the shit I've read and experienced the connection between training and the science of training becomes it's that theory. And so mm-hmm. you, you said overload specificity, right? Reversibility, all these things that one research has proven and then a best practice from all many of the coaches like we've talked to and seen in the weight rooms and, and, and freaking our experience training. So yeah. uh, definitely want to highlight those three. You just said it off, off the cuff and I, I want our listeners to really write those down. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, and man, like, so, you know, going again with, you know, you know, specificity, overload, progression, uh, you know, law diminishing returns, you know, it, you know, kind of like was mentioned earlier, you've got a recreational student, you know, you, you take them to do anything for them for six to eight weeks, they're going to be see tons of improvement because they haven't been doing a whole lot. Sure. You know, so, I mean, that's what I was, that's what I was joking about, is, man, you can do anything to anybody for about six weeks and you're going to be able to make a ton of money on it because they're going to see <laughs> adaptations just from a neurological standpoint. But as a coach, you make your money after that six-week time frame. Exactly. And it's like it's no, it's no coincidence that the as seen on TV lasts for 90 days, you know, because that's where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck and the most returns, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. But, you know, the, the other, on the flip side of this too, now to go back to the academic side, the other challenge is, is now you see the coaches that are out there who go, you know, screw this. I don't give a damn what the research says. I know it's right. I'm doing it anyway. And that's not a good look either because, you know, that's one of the things, man, you know, in the past, I was very fortunate early on in my career. I got to do several videos and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I tell people, I was like, God, don't buy them. In fact, if you see them, buy them, burn them and get rid of them because I would never do that now because things have came out later that said, you know what, you know, some of it was good. Some of it was not so good, but my training philosophy over the last decade has changed a lot based on what I've learned. You know, and that's the thing I always tell my grad students, like, man, you got to stay up with this stuff because the bottom line is, you know, what if everything that we tell you here in the next two years is wrong? Yeah. Now what? Yeah, we, we call that the coach's journey. And that's, uh, you know, we, we run a seminar series that's been going since 2008. And dude, it's like, dude, you sound like me with uh, writing a book. Like I uh, got hit up to write this nutrition book and I wrote it and I sat on it. And every year I go back and I'm like, God damn, I think I didn't put that out. I'm like a fucking idiot. <laughs> And my, and, my, and my buddy's like, you got to put that shit out there so you can do rewrites. And uh, I'm like, oh, God. And like, uh, I, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's almost like the um, every year goes on, the more how I, I realize how much less I know, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's that, that yeah. chart where, you know, what I think I know, what I <laughs> really know type well, deal. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like 10 years ago, I know so much more. And now I'm like, fuck, I don't even know what I know anymore. Oh, I know, man. When I when I came out of grad school and my master's, I knew everything. It was awesome. And, and now that I got my PhD, I'm like, dude, you don't know anything. I mean, because it's all those things where until you get exposed to some of the things, you don't know how inadequate you actually are in certain places. I'm like, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. I think the other great thing about the NSCA that I've been really fortunate with is, you know, there's so many great coaches and practitioners and researchers that you can reach out to. And the funny thing about it is, I promise you right now, call a researcher about a study they did, and they're going to be flat out giddy. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just excited that somebody read it. And, you know, more, more of the times than not, you'd be surprised at how many times you make a phone call, uh, you know, to, you know, like a Bill Kramer or, um, you know, we called uh, Michael Yesis at one point and to ask him a question. And he picks up phones like, this mic. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you're answering your own phone? I mean, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, and, and, you know, sat and had an hour conversation about some stuff. So, you know, it, it's, a lot of times, I think that's the thing we're very fortunate about in our career path 
I think you run into a lot of people who are very genuinely interested in helping people and really want to disseminate information. And again, you know, a lot of times we have, you know, little disputes about the things that, you know, people get really passionate about, you know, different training methodologies and methods and, and things of that, that nature. But, you know, bottom line, man, there's a lot of stuff out there that works. And, you know, it's, it's funny, my students will say, well, you know, what, what method do you ascribe to? And, you know, what do you do? And, I said, yeah, yeah, I had a situation where I had a West Side guy, and then all of a sudden, you know, a guy that was just purely Olympic lift, you know, which, which one do you gravitate to? I'm like, man, I gravitate to what works. And I'm not going to exclude anything that may help improve performance, whether that be, you know, a West Side technique or, you know, your you know, more pure, um, you know, Olympic weightlifting style stuff. Well, where somebody is in the training life cycle. I mean, that's something we've really have, uh, observed yeah. is that, you know, a lot of these different training methodologies uh, apply for where an athlete is in their life cycle. Like, you know, if you were to take a, you know, we fought against this, you take something like a beginner and you put them in a West Side deal, they don't have the central nervous system efficiency or the strength or just even the, the technique and the, the mileage. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, I mean, the myelination to be able to efficiently do these uh, movements in a way that's going to be both meaningful. So, why put right. somebody into something where, you know, they're doing it? I mean, just uh, basic overload, you know, linear progression works great. Just basically giving somebody the opportunity to get enough, uh, you know, bites of the apple, enough swings at the ball, just to get information at it. And then, you know, and then you look at something like, you know, people always go, you know, what about something like, you know, uh, Jim Wendler is a buddy of ours. And I'm like, Jim, I, I think a program's phenomenal for that kind of like, I'm not a beginner, but I'm not an advanced athlete. And I need, right. I need more volume. I need more tonnage. I need to do this. And you kind of start tweaking the program. And then you kind of get and in. Keep and keep it simple. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, people get so fucking jiggy that all of a sudden you're like, "Ah, I don't even know what this is doing. But I mean, all these different programs, and that's what I really kind of run into and have a lot of issue with, uh, you know, a lot of people that actually, you know, create their own method is that the method is, you know, just for this specific point in time, but yet they try to uh, extrapolate and say it's good for everybody. I'm like, that's not true. I mean, we've yeah. tested just about everything out there, and everything kind of fits and works for a certain athlete at a different time. If you understand the physiology and you understand and understand training and what they're yeah. they need to get yeah, better. and then what, what they're trying to get better at. I mean, it's kind of and I mean, we've seen athletes all the time. I'm like, you know, uh, can you handle volume? Can you handle intensity? And you know, can you recover enough? And everybody's kind of got you know a bunch of different. Uh, uh, you know, needs, I guess you could say, and we call, you know, are you a recovery giant? Are you, uh, you know, are you a midget? You know, like, what does it look like? I mean, I have some people that can train heavy every single day and some people that only maybe a couple times a month. So right. you can't really just offer this kind of one size fits all. And I think that was uh, most apparent. I, I've, I played uh, uh, football at UC Berkeley and my strength coach was a guy named Todd Rice. And, uh, yeah. you know, you, you know, Todd? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Todd was our guy, you know, in pure Olympic lifting. And it was, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, very basic Bulgarian sprint plyo program. And we had, you know, guys like me that flourished in the system and we had other guys get shattered into a million pieces. Right. And we were once asking him like that. And he's like, uh, you know, basically you got to break some fucking eggs was his comment. And I remember <laughs> thinking like, if you know Todd, he's, he's fucking abrasive, but I, I like, there were good players that didn't survive in that system. And I always think right. like, you have to be able to like, it's here and you know, and then you start being able to make it. And he was real, you know, my way or the highway, go fuck off if you can't do it. Whereas I always think if he could have been a little bit more, we would have definitely had more players available to us. Right. And, and, and that's the challenge too, because I mean, you don't want to have to write, you know, a hundred different programs either. So, but that, that's what we do a lot of is, you know, we, we have our one program that hits the uh, bulk of just the general athleticism. And then we individualize based on what the individual athletes needs are. And you'll make those little subtle adjustments. And, 
you know, it doesn't make the job easier by any stretch, but, you know, we feel like at, at this stage of the game with a lot of the folks that we have, it, it makes a big difference. And, you know, I think it's – so two points on what you guys were hitting on. You know, one, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the things – I think a lot of times coaches really try and get clever a lot of times with the conditioning programs that they develop to the point where it's not easy to follow and it's not doable. You know, so I think that's kind of one challenge we have. Like, how do you make it doable for, for the athlete, for the individual? You know, and I think, you know, another interesting point is like when you're looking at that lifespan and life cycle, you know, with uh, a lot of the law enforcement groups that I work with, you know, I kind of fall in that space right now. I'm 39 years old and, you know, I can still do most of the things I did when I was 20. It just hurts a lot more. and takes about five times longer to recover from it, <laughs> you know, and, and that's the big thing is like a lot of us are kind of in that space right now to where, yeah, we can still do those things, but we have to be very dialed in about our training to make sure we don't crush ourselves. And, uh, you know, especially for those guys, if you got a guy who's a SWAT operator, you know, if I take him to the gym and, and kill him, then it's like, dude, like, okay, you may be going on an operation later that day. So it's literally a life and death situation. You know, so if you're stepping out of the back of a, you know, a, a van and all of a sudden your knees go, that's not a good look, you know? So, you know, as you said before, it is that, um, you know, what's the best tool for the job given what the circumstances are. And, you know, that was, you know, kind of going back to the whole research perspective. That's the one thing about research is we tend to make it very clean um, in order to make sure that, you know, we can, you know, isolate and measure certain variables, but the real world is very messy, you know? And, And that's why, you know, again, with a lot of research, studies you'll see certain things that may work that may not necessarily work in a um, you know real world setting because you know again the variables are completely different so you know those are all those things that you just really got to weigh out and take in consideration when you're going through that process so jay as you're going through that and let's say you get a population of athletes or like you know law enforcement or swat um what, do you have a specific process or tool for you to, I guess, reverse engineer or deconstruct the demands and evaluate those variables and then identify, you know, with a, a broad brush stroke, your approach with them? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I think one of the things we look at, you know, kind of your, your traditional needs analysis, you know, so going in, you know, what are the physiological, biomechanical, metabolic needs of, of the actual activity that they're in? And then, you know, also looking at injury profiles. You know, so not only the injury profile based on the activity, but based on what that, you know, person is. So, you know, again, a lot of law enforcement folks that we work with, you know, again, by the time you get to your mid-30s, a lot of people bring a lot of baggage to the table as far as injuries and, and things like that that we have to accommodate for. Um, and, and, you know, as I said before, there's more than one way to do this. So it's not – that's not a huge drama. It's just a matter of, you know, trying to figure out how do we get you through it, how do we get you through it clean. Um, with our training academies, I will say this, it's very, it's a very unique situation. So like SWAT, most of you guys are, are super fit anyway. You know, we always joke about that's your pro athletes of the police force. Um, but when you're looking at just like a training academy, I mean, literally we've had situations where we have people come in jumping 36 inches and we've had some jumping three. Kid you not three. I actually measured it. I saw it. I didn't believe it at first. I'm like, this can't be right. And I'm like, yep, no, that is three. I still don't believe you. I still don't believe somebody could. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was pretty. Tex can only jump three inches. Right. Times 10. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get them out down the vertex. Yeah. yeah, We got a vertex. Let's see it, bitch. Yeah, no, it it was, it was fairly underwhelming really. But here's the funny thing. Like the guy that jumped 36, no control whatsoever. I mean, it was just an all-out freaking 36-cent jump. And, and, and so, have you guys seen the old Police Academy movies? Of course. 
Yeah, this dude was like Tackleberry, right? Oh, so he was the guy that, you know, he's going to shoot the cat out of the tree to get it out. It's just raw force and strength, no <laughs> finesse. So, they, so when we actually got him dialed into where he actually landed, because that's what we say, dude, gravity always wins. So make sure you can actually land here. He was back down to 32. Still impressive. But, again, you've got a huge diversity in that group. So, you know, that's the thing we look at with a lot of those folks, we start out with kind of your basic linear progression model just to develop a foundation. And, and like you mentioned before, get those reps in, but dial out the, uh, or, you know, drill down the movement patterns, refine those processes, and then we'll worry about load later. As we start getting about midway through the academy, that's where it actually starts to switch gears to maybe like more of an undulated model to where, you know, we're going, you know, hit a little bit of strength, power, endurance on the different days because at that point, um, a lot of their more specific skill sets start coming in. So, you know, they start doing a lot more deft tack and, um, you know, stuff like that. So we have to accommodate for that to make sure that they're able to um, recover. You know, so as far as a generalized approach, like, you know, we do that with, we've done that with one academy. You know, we've got another where we take a completely different approach where, you know, they came in, everybody was pretty fit. It's like, you know what, undulated model with you guys is going to work fine. Uh, and then we've had some situation where, you know, we went from a three day to a four day to a two day. So it's like, well, you know, we'll, you figure it out is what it gets down to. And it's, it's funny, man. I've had um, another guy that was fantastic at like speed agility development. And you know, he's written numerous chapters and books and things like that. And I said, you know, Hey man, like when I look at your method here, you know, to actually run through this process, like you're saying is going to take an hour to an hour and a half. And uh, I don't know that we got that kind of time. And uh, he goes, well, you know, if you're not going to do that, just don't worry about it. Like, just get stronger. I wouldn't even, like, try to do speed work. I'm like, well, okay, that's not really an option. Like, I need – we need to groove out some movement patterns. Like, yeah. just get stronger to hell with it. I'm like, all right, well, yeah, and so you, you, you figure a way to make that's, it work. So that's the, that's the universal. If you can't do it, just get stronger. Yeah. Yeah, you know, right. And, and that, you know, we always kind of uh, deviate a little bit where people talk about, you know, elements of fitness, like in CrossFit, how strength is just an element of fitness. I'm like, no, no, no. Strength is the platform of which everything else is built. Because uh, if you got strength, you're you're probably ninety percent there on just about everything else. Yeah. So right. and, you know, I mean, and, and it's true. I mean, just in, in in our training and what we've seen with people, uh, definitely the stronger athletes, uh, you know, have you know uh, apply faster or learn skills that are quicker skill acquisition. And it's even yeah. you know what's interesting is this was just Jay observation for us in terms of kind of putting the stronger people through maybe more complex movement flows and then uh we then go shooting with the, one of our navy seal buddies who has the same observation that the guys who came in who were fitter and stronger took less rounds to yeah. to kind of adapt to the handgun training that we were we were going through as well so i i, I work as a contractor for naval special warfare and i go and i teach performance with seal teams oh, okay um, uh so I, I had a pretty good background of working with those guys and got a couple opportunities to go to the shooting schools and do some training stuff with them and the thing which was universally true was that the people that were stronger and well-trained uh, needed yeah. less work to get to where they needed to go. And then our other buddy teaches a bunch of private, um, you know, kind of civilian type stuff. He's a former SEAL. And same thing, uh, these guys had never shot pistols and basically just teaching them the movements and methodologies. Like in about 30 minutes, they were proficient enough. Uh, he goes for, you know, what might take me two or three days for the guy who's completely out of shape. Yeah, decondition, big belly. Yeah, and, and to me, that's, uh, you know, it's pretty telling. It's like, you know, if, if you're stronger and well-trained, you know, your skill acquisition is so much faster. And, right. uh, you know, and, and just even being able to, you know, at one of the classes I went to uh, to shoot, he had me talk to the guys and, you know, not a single one of them had any concept of what it meant. Like, like what do you mean training? Yeah. Like yeah. going to the gym? like Treadmills? Yeah, like, yeah. like, yeah, like <laughs> uh, elliptical with my wife. And I remember thinking, like, 
fuck, like that's such a, a underrepresented. And then I actually got an opportunity to go down and uh, work with uh, Flexi down in, in New Mexico. And the one thing that I thought was kind of funny was, uh, you know, you go through and you ask people about training and just being able to uh, ask people like, oh, um, oh, how many drugs are you on? Yeah, while, while we're on the subject of kind of police officers, military, tell us more about kind of TSAC because I know every year they do a conference. So yeah. What, what can people go to go there to learn? What are some resources on, I'm looking at the website right now, that people can go to to learn more about TSAC and their approach to just military law enforcement training? Yeah, so actually the, the TSAC program, uh, I was really fortunate. Back in 2007 when I was the uh, education director at the NSCA, that's when the program really took off and, and started going. Uh, Mark Stevenson and uh, Commander Thor Eels were kind of the guys who were the catalyst behind that whole program. And, uh, you know, Commander Eels is with the uh, Colorado Springs SWAT team. And uh, amazing guy. And I tell you what, you know, the stuff that they were doing was just so, uh, you know, cutting edge compared to what was uh, seen in the SWAT community that the program just really took off. And, uh, you know, now it's focused on, you know, all first responders. So, you know, military, firefighter, police, and, uh, you know, really trying to give those folks the stuff that they need to be occupationally fit. Um, you know, because really they're, you know, we call them tactical athletes or occupational athletes because, you know, they have to do a lot of the same movement patterns and a lot of the same things that, you know, elite level athletes have to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, the stakes are a lot higher than a medal. You know, and, and it's one of those challenges where, you know, again, for me personally, when, whenever the program came out, it was one of those things that was not on my radar at all. And uh, it, literally, the program's changed the course of my career. Um, it, it actually, that's my primary area of research with athletic performance kind of being a, a close second on that. Um, but yeah, as far as like getting more involved with the program, you know, the NSCA has a fantastic program. Um, uh, Tyler Christensen is the uh, program manager for that right now. And uh, he's a great resource, great person. And, uh, you know, really doing a whole lot to help bolster that program and continuing to um, help coaches and practitioners get more information on how to work with that population. Is it the conference always in San Diego or? It's not. It actually moves around. So uh, I think this year, I want to say it's in Orlando. Okay. Yeah, so not, not a bad location. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully the Zika thing is not an issue, but. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Are you pregnant? <laughs> I don't think so, but. <laughs> <laughs> the, the NSA study hasn't come out yet, so I can't tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but, when, but when the data is published, uh, ironically, I saw this on, uh, it was on Instagram or somebody, ta- or actually no, somebody didn't tag me on it, but somehow. Now Instagram is head. a scholarly journal if I'm <laughs> it, was, it was about things that were born as female or as males or no females that wanted to become transgender uh-huh. and became men but then still want to breastfeed so it was like a dude breastfeeding Interesting. And, they, and they were talking about it uh, my, my wife's pregnant or my, my wife uh we had a little boy so i, I got twin daughters and i got a little boy who's about five months and so uh my wife breastfeeds. And so we were just uh, a buddy of mine got married in the UK. And so we had to fly to London with my family, which was a complete fucking de- debacle. Uh, I hate this guy for the rest. So I, I told him that I'm like, thank you very much for inviting us to a wedding. I appreciate that you wanted my daughters and, uh, uh, as your flower girls, but basically you're fucking dead me after having to fly yeah. my wife and my kids and everybody. So my wife, you know, breastfeeds and, um, uh, people like are kind of weird about it. Like, you know, like she's got like the, the deal over and like we were on the plane and she's like, and like you could see like people were a little upset and this guy was kind of, I was like, what, 
ago, like, looked at me, and I was like, I'm ready to fucking kill this dude. Like, what are you fucking upset that, like, women do? Like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. And, but then I saw this picture of this dude breastfeeding, and I was like, okay, I got a problem with that. Why am I fucking having a problem with this? Yeah, so, right. I don't even know where that fucking came from, but... Uh, Hey, Power Athlete Nation. I typically like to interrupt all breastfeeding stories with a public service announcement. Here's ours. Wade's Army's fifth annual Wade's Day campaign has officially kicked off. From now until November 12th, we will be honoring the brave pediatric cancer patients battling neuroblastoma, a tumor derived from immature nerve cells. For 2016, we're embracing their valor and highlighting their nerves of steel. Join the fight against neuroblastoma and help us reach our goal of fundraising $125,000. Enlist today at wadesarmy.org by clicking the Donate Now badge and claim your limited edition Wade's Army uniform. Every army needs a uniform. <laughs> so, oh, and it's case study. Hang on. Is that a performance enhancer right there? Your your ability to wrap things back into the original point is really shaken well, up. I'm also really. I'm, I'm, I'm also pretty jet lagged. Uh, my son, who uh, uh, has been waking up every hour, is yeah. uh, he rolls over, and for some reason he he could roll over, and now he, and he could roll back, and he was fine sleeping on his stomach. All of a sudden, last night he rolled over, and he got stuck, and got he's got that bulk. He's so, probably put on another five pounds. Uh, he's only like 22 pounds in yeah. five months. So we were hoping to get him up to 30 pounds by six months, but he's not going to make. It. I, I told my wife, thing. I was like, we need to increase the feedings. <laughs> I'm like, every yeah, we got to feed this. <laughs> Checking the bottle for PEDs. And <laughs> <all> this- <laughs> I, I, I was telling my wife, I was like, man, I was like, what do you need to eat to make this? You know, I'm like, well, what can we put together? Like more protein shakes or whatever. So my wife was fully on board. She's like, I'm a, I found this special tea that's called, I'm like, drink it. She's like, yeah. oh, they're like making these gallons of tea. I'm like, making some high octane uh, breast milk, huh? <laughs> right. Exactly. Like breast milk, creatine. Well, uh, <laughs> what I told her, I was like, get the creatine in there. That stuff is great. I, I had a fucking in college. Uh, one of the guys I played football with was giving his dog creatine. And all of a sudden, his dog was like up to like, a, it was a pit bull. It was like up to like 150 pounds. And he like got out of the car and I got fucking nervous. I like went to hide behind something. He's like, what? I'm like, is that your dog? Creatine's like, working. I was like, it looks like a bear. He's like, yeah, I'm feeding the creatine. Holy shit, that stuff works. Yeah. And then, you know, this was in the 90s when people like still were kind of questioning creatine. And ever since then, I'm like, I'm taking five grams a day for the rest of my life. And I always joke that I'm the longest continuous creatine user on the planet. I started taking it in 1990. So at least five grams a day since 1990. And people are like, what about muscle tears, liver, kidneys? And I'm like, no. And I drank like a fish in college. So I would think if there was some liver or kidney problems. Yep. And the good news is there's a lot of research that shows those are, those are unsubstantiated claims. So there you go, man. <laughs> I think this is a perfect transition for kind of one of the questions I had in the holster here. Is it about dogs? Like, I don't know where. I mean, <laughs> but the publication process, can you yeah. educate us and our listeners on what it takes to get a research study published? Because it is not easy. Yeah, no, it, it actually is a little bit of an ordeal at times. Um, so, you know, basically, in order to even do a study, you have to go through ethics at the university. Um, so first and foremost, that's going to be, you know, at least a minimum of an eight hour training that all researchers have to go through to make sure that they're conducting their research in an ethical manner. Um, to summarize it, basically don't lie to people, don't make them cry, don't kill them, don't hurt them, and you're pretty well good. But that's about an eight hour process to get to the real nuts and bolts of it. Um, so that's the first step. Um, if you have an idea for a research study, then what you do is you have to run it through the ethics committee at the university to make sure that you know, you're not going to do anything that's uh, inhumane or 
um, you know, may cause any kind of, you know, physical or emotional damage to, to an individual. So basically you write up your proposal, you submit that to an institutional review board, they review it. And then if there's anything in there that looks like it may be questionable, um, usually there's some dialogue that goes back and forth just to improve the clarity of you know, what you're exactly wanting to do. And then, you know, at that point in time, um, they'll, they'll re-review it and then they will say, yes, you're um, allowed to go forward with this or uh, you need to make significant adjustments to make sure that um, you know, people remain safe during the study. So after that process, uh, you actually do the study. Um, a lot of times recruiting subjects is very, very difficult. You know, kind of the, the point that was brought up earlier, you know, you try and find that ideal sample population. But, you know, a lot of times it's really difficult to get it drilled down to the group that you actually want to look at. So that's why subsequently a lot of times when you're looking at your uh, treatment-based studies, it's more, you know, your 18 to 22-year-old college students because, one, you know, that's who most professors have you know, easy access to. Um, but, two, you know, as I said before, you're not going to get a lot of coaches who are willing to gamble on letting their athletes be in a research study. Um, because again, you know, not only could it affect their performance, but you know, again, at the end of the day, it may impact winning, which is, you know, in athletics, that's kind of the big deal. Coach is not going to put his um, career on the line to see if a research study is, does Isn't that what walk-ons are for? What's that now? Isn't that what walk-ons are for? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't get enough of them, but, <laughs> but yeah, you know, so that's, that's kind of that first process is, you know, going through that. And, you know, once you do the study, you execute it, you run all the stats, then you try to find a journal that is acceptable for publication. So, you know, consequently, a lot of what I do um, is based more in the strength conditioning area. So, you know, so the main things that I will, are the main journals I usually focus on are like your uh, journal of strength conditioning research or journal of Australian strength conditioning. Um, and then a lot of other exercise science type journals. So you submit it there. Um, at that point, the editor will assign reviewers to it. Um, sometimes as much as two to three reviewers will take a look at that paper. They will review it to make sure that it is a good uh, quality study, and then they will usually send back feedback. I, it's been very few times where I've got a research study back that didn't have some comment on it. Um, and a lot of that is just a due diligence issue, you know, where, you know, you want to make sure that you're actually going through and kind of coaching the um, person who submitted the research study up a little bit and make sure that the product is as good as it could possibly be. So you get that back. Um, hopefully it's with either, you know, minor revisions or, you know, a few different things that uh, you need to be dialed in before it's actually accepted. Sometimes you get a flat out rejection on it. And, uh, you know, and that's what I joke about, you know, we've had some students that have submitted to certain journals and they were rejected. I'm like, you know what, like you're going to have to get a thick skin. That's part of the process. And, you know, I guess looking at me, you know, the viewers won't be able to see, but I'm used to rejection. So it's not really a big deal. But <laughs> oh, Don't say that. But, but, you know, that's the big thing is that, you know, a lot of times it's not even necessarily that the study is not of good quality, but it may not be a good fit for the journal. So, you know, that's the other aspect of it. So once it's submitted, you know, hopefully it's a good fit and hopefully that that works out. At that stage, uh, there's a revision process and then it's re-reviewed by the reviewers. And uh, then at that point in time, they say, you know, it's either you know, accepted or more revisions are necessary and so on and so forth. So it's a very in-depth process. So when revisions occur, do they, they have to redo the study or just how it's kind of worded? And no, you, usually it's wording and uh, increase, uh, improving clarifications on stuff. So, you know, because there's a lot of things that I'll do that seem completely obvious to me. But, 
you know, the, the average reader of that article may not know. So it actually, it really is a very good process because it makes the communication more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, in the situation, you know, where you go in and you do a research study and the data you get, uh, you know, if they come back and say, hey, we want you to redo this or that, then, I mean, I guess at that stage of the game, you have the option to redo the whole study or to, you know, submit to another journal to see if they're willing to accept what you do have. Um, give you guys a, a for instance on that one. Some, some of the research I've done with law enforcement, we've had um, archival data that we looked at from fitness tests that have um, been conducted by the officers. So we go back in, we look at that data, and we help do some analysis and you know, help them, again, refine their processes. Well, there was one that we were looking at um, trying to get published, and we had weight for about 640 officers, but we had nothing on height. And so when we submitted it, you know, they said, hey, you know, this isn't acceptable. We need information on height so we understand the demographic better. And I'm like, okay, well, we don't have it. And we really can't go back in and get that. So, you know, at this stage of the game, you know, height's not necessarily a deal breaker. Are we going to be able to get that through? Because, you know, we just can't do that. And uh, you know, in, in that situation, we were fine. They, they understood the, the challenges of dealing with archival versus a prospective study. But, uh, yeah, you know, if you run a study and you do something that, you know, isn't really 100% dialed in or you find out all of a sudden midway through the study, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, we've made a big mistake here. We really should have done it this way. You're kind of dead in the water. <laughs> you, you chalk it up to an experience, and, you know, I usually say experience is what you get when you don't always get what you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and learn from it, right? Yeah, and, and like I said, you know, man, we've done several studies in the past where, you know, it was looking really, really good. And then all of a sudden we recognized one variable that needed to change. You're like, you know what? Everything we just did is garbage because that's not, it's going to affect everything else. And at that point you just go back to square one and go back to the drawing board. So, you know, in a lot of ways it's like coaching, you know, you, you go through, you, you try your process. Oh, yep. That didn't work. We need to try something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to go back and just curious about your like your journey as a coach, Jay. Um, you know, you something you said I think in your very first kind of elevator pitch intro deal was about an opportunity. The opportunity afforded you exposure to more connections, right? right. And uh, we do a seminar where we are we're probably early life cycle for a lot of coaches who are in the the strength and conditioning world. And uh, what we try to do is really highlight that fact that you need to go out and you need to make these connections and pick up the phone, things like that. And, uh, you know, be told I'm, I'm kind of at the, at the fort keeping things running, but Texas, our guy, our feet on the street, he's the one on his big Abon journey to, uh, to make these connections on our behalf. And then John has more than through his tenure NFL career than, than most can will ever reach. Right. So I was just curious what, what I'm not really tired. When you're, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm curious, like, what connections have you made that have been memorable for you that may have shifted your trajectory and your thought process? Going back to talking about like what you've done 20 years ago and what your your philosophies were, uh, you know, what were some moments that shifted that for you? Oh man, you know, honestly, that that's a tough question to answer because there's been so many. Um, you know, I, I think again, taking that leap and going to the NSCA headquarters was a really big one. Um, you know, at that point, you know, I met a gentleman named Mark Stevenson, who was the uh, uh, Human Performance Center director there. And as I mentioned before, at that point, he was moving into that TSAC program and was the founder of that. Um, you know, literally that shifted my entire career. Um, 
you know, looking at, you know, other individuals, man, like I said, it, it's hard to say because it's almost, there's so many I can't even count. You know, it, it, I think a lot of it is just those, those interactions that you have at conferences and, you know, taking that risk to go up and introduce yourself to somebody who, you know, uh, you, you wouldn't think would talk to you. I remember one of the first conferences I went to, um, Steve Fleck was there. And, you know, I'm sitting here looking like, dude, like this is the guy that writes the books that I read to get better at this. And uh, so I walk up to him and I said, you know, Dr. Fleck, you and Dr. Kramer are kind of like the Rolling Stones of exercise science. And he's like, I've never heard that before. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, just getting to have those interactions and those little conversations, it, it's funny how those little things can have such a profound impact. Um, you know, another one, Juan Carlos Santana. You know, and, and Carlos has been a guy who's been very controversial over his career. Uh, but, you know, that guy, he – so when I was a grad student at Oklahoma State, um, you know, after I kind of got switched on to the NSCA and, and all that, I started reading some of the stuff he was doing with like the whole functional training movement and, and all that. Now, since then, I know the term's been bastardized a little bit, but we we like refer to it as beat to death. Yeah, like, yeah, it, it's been beat. Like, yeah, and, and that's I the thing that you know, with to death, and then they came back and they ran over it and they beat it some more, <laughs> and it's still being beat. Yeah, oh, it's, yeah it's right. Beat. But but you know, I mean, I think that was one of the things like with the, the stuff that Juan was doing, like he was really pushing some boundaries and thresholds and things that people hadn't seen before. And uh, you know, so I went to a uh, a free motion conference uh, for the equipment manufacturer that he was doing in Oklahoma City, and uh, you know, the conference was over, and you know, here I am, a twenty three year old kid. And uh, afterwards, I said, you know, Mr. Santana, I was, you know, had some ideas for my thesis. You know, do you mind if I talk to you for a minute? And Juan sat there for an hour and a half after the conference was over talking to a 23-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. You know, and he didn't need to do that. But, you know, that had such a major impact on me. And, you know, subsequently, you know, I, you know we stayed connected. I'm like, hey, you know, do you care if we – could we try and write something together? And, uh, you know, and he was very, you know, generous to extend the opportunity to write with him and do some things like that. And, you know, it's – when I got the job at the NSJ, I know for a fact that he was one of the guys who vouched for me getting that job. So, yeah. you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, I think that's been the other thing I've been fortunate with is, you know, there's a few people that ask me, say, hey, aren't you afraid to do this stuff? I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm scared to death, but I'm more afraid of what would not happen if I didn't. You know, and, and I think that's the hard thing is like really being able to take that leap and go, you know what, I'm going to have to risk making an ass out of myself to go out here and really grow and, and be a professional. And, you know, a lot of times it's making those phone calls to people who are better than you. You know, that's, that's the other thing that I think I've been very, um, you know, blessed with is, you know, I know so many people who are so much better at, you know, a lot of these things than I am. And I can call them up and go, Hey, here's what I was thinking is, am I on the right track? What would you recommend? You know, and a lot of it, it's, it's hard, especially for younger coaches, because you got to eat that humble pie. Yeah. You got to be able to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to go out and get them. Yeah, and just, I guess, test your, I don't know, is faith the right term? Like, test your faith in what you're doing. Understanding. Well, yeah, test your understanding. Well, that and also, um, I always think that the most meaningful and some of the best coaches I've met were the ones that were so quick to basically give credit to other places. Like, I didn't I, I didn't invent this stuff. I learned it here. This is who I mentored with. But I, uh, what I always kind of – gives me like the sixth sense and the hair on my body Red flag, yeah. is when the guy like I invented all this stuff uh-huh. I mean I, I, I read a book recently uh actually kind of a big strength and issue book right now and I got done I'm like that guy say he invented that stuff and I remember like yeah it, like it, looking it, behind you at all the books that yeah, you know, and read like, it before wait a minute hold on <laughs> like, like like what are we talking about here like we've been using essentially negative years mm-hmm. you know like so 
uh, that to me always is a big red flag, and I'm, I'm always uh, more impressed when people are so quick to be like, hey, you know, this is what I studied with, this is where I learned this, this is my application, and this is the information, and, and it, it just, we call it creating genealogy, where you create this kind of circle around you that not only gives you support, but also, you know, you, know, you stand on the shoulders of giants, opposed to everybody being like, you know, I was the one that invented the ring push-up. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody before me overhead <laughs> squatted, and uh, nobody ever squatted over 90% before I did it. Well, John, I mean, a great... I mean, that's a true statement. Nobody ever squatted over 90%. I mean, great it's like, a great I, analogy I, here, though, is I did, I've done my uh, my annual viewing of Fight Club. It's just like it was always there. Tyler and I just gave it a name, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just it's, it's kind of for everything, yeah, man. It, it's true, but, I mean, people really, uh, you know, and we run into coaches all the time. And, um, you know, like my well, one of my favorites was... Uh, you know, I, I went to a seminar and people were talking about metabolic conditioning, mm. almost as if they invented metabolic conditioning. And the irony of that is the old power lifter that trained me when I was 14 years old, we used to do metabolic conditioning in the form of heady farmer's walks with heavy ass dumbbells up his steep ass driveway. And he called it metabolic conditioning. And Todd Rice, who did metabolic conditioning and every strength coach, I mean, the Nebraska circuits were metabolic conditioning circuits. I mean, that's what But the problem about. is you didn't marry the first two syllables and drop the rest of the verbiage. The Metcon. <laughs> you get it. You got to give it a sexier name, man. I, 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 all about marketing, really. <laughs> if you can make it sexy, it sells. Because yeah. dudes in like you know, uh, you know, Dr. Kramer in a white in a white lab coat. There's nothing sexy about that. <laughs> well, what's you know, underneath? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows, and I don't think we want to know. Yeah, you know, and that's that's the challenge, man. And that's what I'll tell my students because you know they come in and they're fired up to learn, and they're great kids, and they know so much more than I knew at that stage of the game because they got so much more opportunities available to them. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember, you know, if I wanted to know something, I had to call a coach and go, "Hey, how are you doing this? How does this work?" Versus now, I mean, you can get almost anything you want at the you know click of a mouse, which sure. is also the danger. Oh is yeah, because I'm you know, I I think the internet's a fad, and I hope it goes away. <laughs> it's like pockets and stuff. But this is where we can marriage the, the academic and then the coaching and find that theory is that you are promoting your students to understand the principles versus just doing it because another coach did it. Right. And well, and that's from the yeah, that's a big argument is like, you know what? Like if I have an exercise in a program for an athlete, if you can't explain to them why that's in their program, it doesn't need to be in there. And, and it, at the private sector, what we're running into is we're doing this type of programming. Why are you doing that? Because the the best in the world's doing it. Right. There's that lack well, of understanding. Or well, the, I, this is what I did in college. Well, or yeah, yeah, what I did. Oh yeah, yeah we, we we run into that a lot. But I was thinking back on uh, when we had Stu McGill on, who one of my favorite people in the world that we've ever had on our podcast. We've had several offline deals. I remember he sent me his new book, and uh, I go through it and I read it. He's like, "You give me a review." I'm like. Uh, this is phenomenal. Like this, you know, about how to like live forever and not have back pain and how to do it. And I was like, I was like, talk, this is great, but I'm gonna fucking buy this. And he was like, yeah, I didn't think so. And I'm like, it, it makes too much sense. It's too simple. <laughs> yeah. it, it, like, like I'm reading it and there's nothing insane. Uh, there, there's nothing polarizing. It's like, I want you to lift heavy. I want you to walk. I want you to like, you know, different carry, movement patterns. I want to yeah. carry, I want to push, Race. I want right. to, you know, I want to learn to brace. And I'm like, uh, everybody should read this, but unfortunately nobody is going to read it because it's like, it's not the seven minute abs or the six minute abs or whatever it is. And I, and I like, that's the hard thing with the strength conditioning world is, um, 
like you said it like you know the simpler the better it takes time i mean the name of my blog is it's it's a long road because training is a long road but unfortunately that isn't what gets people to put down their credit card and pay 49.99 or gets people to you know join this and six weeks i can guarantee if you drink this fucking fit tea you're going to be in shape there's a what what's the name of the tea there's a meme uh, <laughs> i need that tea. Well, well there's a meme <laughs> It's, uh, it, it's Arnold at the Arnold Classic, and he's handing over the uh, the trophy to the girl that won the bodybuilding deal. And like over, it's like, what? Uh, uh, like uh, I think it says, uh, how many different fit teas were you taking? Yeah, you know, <laughs> and the chick dieseled up, and uh, you know, but that's, you know, that's what people want to believe because they want to believe that if I just brew this tea and I drink it, instantly I'll be jacked because these people that are showing it on Instagram are trying to yeah. sell it, put it, and that becomes this like like uh, almost like this paradoxical balance between like this shit isn't easy driving adaptation over long periods of time. And that's what really strength is. And we're talking about training. I mean, we're talking about forcing adaptation, uh, you know, through creating different stress. I'm like, you know, uh, adaptation is really easy to, you know, force in little bits in the beginning, but as time goes on, you have to really fucking turn up the fire. And unfortunately I don't know how to do it in six weeks. I don't know how to make it where it's not, where it's easy. So it's this, I just wish we were better liars. <laughs> well, and, and you know, man, that's the thing is, you know, as you said before, the, the bottom line is blocking and tackling wins games. And it, it's foundations, it's fundamentals. And I think that's the, the challenge is everybody's – well, I say everybody. That's a misnomer. A lot of people are trying to do things that are really, really fancy that at the end of the day uh, – Mostly. You know, how, how, much, how much time do we actually spend wasting our time – in the gym versus just getting in, getting down and dirty with it and moving on. Yeah. You know? and, and that's the, the hard thing is, you know, a lot of times, as you said, it doesn't sell. The basics don't sell because they're the basics. Well, and and, I think and, it's got to be more complicated. And nobody really thinks of themselves as a, a like, like we, we use, we, we really wrestle with this. Like I, I use the word amateur a lot of times or beginner and, you know, a basic and people almost take offense to this. And I'm like, uh, like you can't take offense to that. Like that's just a snapshot of where you are in time. And the, and the more interesting part is just off a bit basic genetic makeup, and we could do this based off of, uh, um, you know, a dynameter grip test and vertical jump. We could literally, if we got an opportunity to test the entire population of the world and basically group them off of a vertical jump and their ability to generate force in like a dynameter on their grip, most people would fit within the beginner, and I want to mention 95% of the world would fit within what I call the amateur beginner. Yeah, yeah. Which would benefit from simpler is better. Which would benefit yeah. from just basic strength training. Um, on, on a different thing, I, I, I think uh, you'd be really interesting on this uh, deal. I don't know if you saw SI Sports Illustrated had an article yesterday called uh, called The Death of Football. Did you read this? No, I didn't. Oh, yeah, go check it out. I, I, I posted it on Twitter, but it was called basically The Death of Football, and it was uh, that, you know, this guy went through and basically said, you know, this is what he thinks could possibly happen with football and, you know, and where, you know, football could evolve into, but I – you know, having worked with teams and at the NSCA and different things. I mean, have you seen a cultural shift within, you know, we're talking about sort of like um, head trauma and all these different issues. I just wonder, is the NSCA really tackling that? Or you guys really come out and said anything or done really? Yeah, you know, what, one thing I can definitively say is it, it's certainly on the radar as far as looking at not necessarily a position statement, but more or less a uh, kind of a best practice statement. You know, because I think that's, the challenges right now there's so much that we fully acknowledge that we don't know but at the same time that's not really giving good guidance either 
you know, so it's one of the things where what we're kind of looking at is, you know, what are some different, um, you know, statements that we can make as far as a you know, best practice statement to help guide and steer coaches in, in that direction? Because I will say this, like, you know, concussions, you know, from so the, the UCCS, we're D2 school, but it is very much on the radar now. And, uh, you know, obviously, we're getting a lot more diagnosis of that. And, you know, the, the debate is, okay, are we actually having all that many more? Or we're just better at catching it now, you know? I, I got contacted by a university down in Texas. I won't name them, but their uh, their head ATC contacted me because um, I had done some writing on basically what I call uh, uh, concussion protocols. You know, somebody gets hit. You know, what would be kind of best practice with not only you know avoiding alcohol, sleep, uh, maybe some supplementation, ketogenic diets, avoiding sugar, kind of some things that uh, I did when I played and you know kind of just naturally kind of fell into that I found you know, years later didn't necessarily have the same problems that a lot of guys that, you know, did my job as long as I didn't have. And uh, so the guy hit me up and said, hey, you know, would you recommend some protocols or, you know, what type of things can we implement? And I kind of wrote out like, hey, if, uh, you know, if somebody gets hit and you observe this, these are the things. The one thing I wouldn't do is give them any sugar and, you know, kind of went through and say, hey, you know, I know Gatorade's giving you guys a lot of money in different ways, but I would definitely uh, avoid pumping them full of glucose and uh, post-concussion, um, you know, and just kind of went through these little things like, you know, um, basically having to avoid alcohol, which is tough for college kids. And just kind of like laid out, you know, this is what I would do if I observed, and this is kind of the direction I went. And uh, the guy wanted to basically come out with a post-concussion protocol based off of this. And I thought that was actually pretty sharp. And, you know, these guys are reaching out to, you know, people like me or just, you know, people really just trying to stay ahead of the curve on this idea. And, um, I, you know, uh, I think if the NACA could come out, I, I just don't know, like, how you navigate that. I mean, you, you have a situation where, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's become, and, and the, this article was really interesting. If you get a chance to go read it, what people don't realize is this whole thing would have been a complete moot point and would have never come to the light of day if the NFL owners had actually given the players lifetime medical benefits. So when they did the CBA and when we played, we only get five years post, uh, um, post career uh, of medical benefits. And the owners have been hardline to never give lifetime medical benefits that all the other professional sports have. Baseball, you play one day, lifetime medical. NHL, all these different people. The NFL, uh, the owners have been like, fuck those guys. We, we don't want them. And so as a result, all, all these concussion lawsuits and a lot of the problems that the guys were facing was because they could not get insurance medical benefits after they stopped playing because they had these pre-existing conditions. So the lawsuits were filed against the NFL, and this whole thing, all, all of this shit came to light because the NFL and the owners were cheap on the front end. If they had just been like, let's just give all these guys lifetime medical benefits and we'll just sweep all this under the, under the rug, not a single thing of this would happen. It's probably going to be their downfall, which always is interesting. You always look and think, you know, greed is really what kills people. And, um, uh, you know, and reading this article yesterday for SI uh, was, to me, like, you know, you have a situation, and actually a, a guy hit me up on Twitter that, you know, uh, they had to cancel football at his son's uh, high school because they only had 16 kids go out for it. So parents, wow. are, yeah, so they canceled uh, freshman football because they could only field 16 kids and they didn't feel comfortable fielding 16 kids on the team. And so he's like, uh, I don't even know what to do. We're thinking of changing schools. What should we do? And I'm like, pick another sport. You know, like, I mean, um, you know, I, I, I always say, you know, the, the best stuff I ever learned in this world was playing football for my parents. Uh, but if all of a sudden football was gone, would I all of a sudden stop teaching life lessons? Would I teach my child not to compete? Would I have them stop training? No. 
just find different avenues to do it. And really, uh, in that article, they talk about the evolution being something like rugby, taking more rugby-type practices and evolving the NFL into something that looks more like a world-type sport, and then they can compete in the Olympics and do different things. So I thought it was really fascinating. But it all comes down to greed. NFL owners, they're going to kill this thing. They yeah. seem nice on TV and on Hard Knocks. <laughs> and ballers. <laughs> and on ballers. Is that not how it is, John? Are you so my, uh, don't pull don't for the curtain off. No, no. I'll, I'll, I'll just give you one story. So I, I played, uh, I got drafted to play for the Philadelphia Eagles. And so you go through uh, minicamp, or I'm sorry, uh, training. <clears throat> and the final cut before training camp falls on like, I think it was like on a Sunday. Well, Saturday, they invite you. You have to go to the owner's house for a party. So you show up to the owner's house, and uh, it's basically like a fun carnival party for the owner's kids and their friends. And just works <laughs> the events and the rides and the games. And it's all a ride-off. you got to like that. <laughs> and so you show up, and you're like, well, fuck the owner of my sister's house. And I'm over there, like, playing hopscotch with these kids. And guys are, like, on the, on the bubble thinking, like, fuck, if I show up, and I do a good job. Maybe they'll keep me. And so the worst is guys that show up and they're all out there like hustling. 8 a.m. Cut those motherfuckers. Oh. And I remember walking in and then all of a sudden seeing the Grim Reaper come and sweep those dudes out the Turk. And I remember thinking like those dudes were over there like, damn, you know, like hustling. You know, over there like playing games <laughs> and these kids having a great time. Just get whacked the next day. And then next year, so that was my freshman year or sorry, my rookie year. Second year, same thing. And I remember like seeing this happen and being like, I'm not going anymore. So third year, I just never went. Thank God they never cut me. They didn't trade me, but they didn't cut me. But uh, that's that's when I realized that you're just hired help. Yeah. So like, that's almost thing. The next day is like, did you guys not see how I performed at cornhole the other day? I, mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> I played fucking hopscotch with this fucking dude's kid, and he cut me. And I was like, like you, you can't teach hopscotch like that. That's natural well, ability, baby. <laughs> Like, what, you know, I mean, these kids are business people. This is dollars and cents. You think all of a sudden free, you know, goodwill and hopscotch is going to keep you, let you make a six-figure salary? Like that here. Yeah. Uh, so that's the NFL in a nutshell for you. Show up and work in <laughs> carnival and cut the next day. Yeah. You know, but, you know, it's actually funny though. you're talking about concussion protocol and, and things like that. You know, that's kind of going back, like, with the research side of it. That's one of the challenges of doing any kind of research like that is I, I can't write up a, a study that says, okay, we're going to go concuss people and then we're going to not get <laughs> see what happens. It'd probably be awesome to try, right? but you know, <laughs> we have 20 kids. We're going to concuss them. 10, we're yeah. going to do nothing. And then 10, we're going to do this. We're going to see who's better. How should we concuss them? Uh, right. Exactly. I, I was thinking about well, let's this. get a study to no, find out which is the best concussion. No, what we, okay. I, and, see, and that's, see, and that's where the research actually, animal starts right there. Like what's actually, the same way to concuss somebody? I, 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 I <laughs> can catch you right off. Cause I'll tell you, there was one thing that when it happened, you were instantly got a concussion, and every guy I saw that this happened, you got knocked out. What's that? A knee to the forehead. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, we, we used to do uh, this thing called a reverse hip block, where basically you throw your head in front, and then you basically throw your back legs. Uh -huh. And so as you throw this way, you spin back. And what you end up doing is spinning like a Venetian blind up the guy's legs, and it's a way to like basically blow out a defensive lineman's leg. So what happens is, is a tackle – uh, the guard will step back and pause, and the defensive lineman stands up, and or when he pauses, he stands up, and then the the guard or sorry, the tackle comes down, throws his back legs, and rolls him up, and you basically blow the dude's knee out. So we used to call uh, basically reverse hip or get this fucker out of the game, and uh, my coach would be like, <laughs> "You're like fuck, you got to do it." So I'm playing tackle, and I throw my head in front. The guy had pretty smartly put his back knee back, and 
as he came forward, he drove his knee right into my forehead. Dong. Instantly. Lights out. I, yeah. I, I was, I was fucking blocked out of my feet. Got up and actually played three more plays. Didn't make a mistake. Went back to the sideline and they were like talking to us. And I was like, I wonder what time they're going to get the pizza and popcorn here. Yeah. <laughs> and then they were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, this would be great. I just wonder if we're going to get drinks with it. And they were like, do you know where you are? I'm like, I think we're at a popcorn party, aren't we? And they were like, <laughs> he's got a concussion. So that happened to me. And then guys that I played with over the years, need a uh, head. Uh, need a head. If a guy, like you ever watch a guy in the NFL get tackled low or whatever, and you see a knee to that forehead, instantly that guy is, is unconscious and out. So the knee square to the forehead, concussion. All right. So yeah. we do now we just got to do it differently. Now we just got to find some 18 to 22 year old kids that are fairly young <laughs> and don't have a history of concussion. And then we right. just put them in football helmets. Well, and that, the fuck out. You know, interestingly enough, and this kind of goes back to the, like the whole tactical side is uh, recently they were wanting to do a study at one of our uh, military bases here looking at uh, concussion and uh, the cognitive function. And they said, you know, we're trying to recruit males between the ages of 25 to 35 years old. And we have to go off base because we can't find any of them have not been concussed. So, you know, again, you, you got artillery going off, bombs going off, it happens. So it, it is, it's interesting. But, you know, John, kind of to your point too, you know, early on, you know, when I was uh, playing baseball my freshman year in college, um, I was playing first base, ball went off wide, I went to block it and got hit square between the eyes. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it was lights out. I mean, I could steer, still hear what was going on around me, but it was not a good situation. And the uh, coach comes running out. He looks at me and goes, yeah, looks like you broke your nose. You good? I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm good. Uh, ironically, I've never hit better in my life for some reason. But it was one of those things where it's like, you know what? You, you know, I think a lot of times as athletes, you know, we're just you know, kind of taught that warrior mentality and just get back in there and grind. And, you know, it, again, kind of like the whole academic and, you know, coaching side that the truth is probably somewhere in between but finding that line is really tough <laughs> yeah no i mean the um yeah no it's uh, i was thinking about the concussion part i mean they they, they talked about it i wasn't uh, aware of this but then in that si deal they had uh, pop warner i think they just filed finished the suit that pop warner had to pay out a big deal that a 25 year old kid who had played pop warner i guess had not played football later on had uh, ended up committing suicide and they went back and found out he had cte damage his brain and they were able to go back and show that it was Pop Warner playing. And um, ironically, my older brother, uh, both, both my older brothers played college football. And I remember my, my brother, Eddie, was he's still a tough fucker. But uh, he ended up taking a, a knee to the forehead and was actually uh, couldn't, didn't have any, par- or oh, sorry, had partial vision in one yeah. eye. So he said basically oh, wow. his side over was like he couldn't yeah, see. Peripheral. And, and I remember, like, like, he was messed up. And I remember I, like, went down. I was like, you all right? He's like, I can't see out of my right eye. And the coach was like, just fine. Just keep blinking. It'll come back. It always does. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember I always joking. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still joking my brother about it. He's like, yeah, that's pretty serious concussion based on all the stuff. I'm like, and he's a lawyer. So, and he's really, really smart. So, I, I mean, we, we joke that, uh, I, you know, obviously didn't mess him up that much. But <laughs> just think I, where he could have been. I firmly believe, and, and this is something that I've seen within my brothers and I, that I believe certain people, whether it be genetics, environment, training, whatever it looks like, um, are more predisposed or actually better equipped to deal with it. Yeah, like and, more resilient from that type of trauma. Um, and the only thing I can go back to is uh, maybe it's got to be diet, but also, um, uh, you know, you think about like your ability to put your neck and put your head in a good position, whether it be uh, trap and neck and strength. I mean, that was something we always really talked about was how do you protect yourself to get through this job? Like how, you know, like how have you effectively armed yourself? What have you done to strap yourself up? 
And, uh, you know, for me, a, a lot of this stuff was, uh, you know, uh, I guess I don't even know what the word, I mean, the only thing that keeps coming to mind is um, I, I have two little or little girls and we have a pool. And so from the time they were little, uh, I put them in the water and uh, they swim. And when I swim with them, we do something that's called ground proofing. We're actually mm -hmm. swimming underwater and as they're swimming, I pull them down and hold them under. And uh, I do it all the time. As soon as we get in the pool, I was telling them about how I try to drown yeah, the kids. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't really try to drown them. But I pull them under all the time, and I hold them under, or I'm like, okay, let's go down and sit on the bottom. And so we're always knowing, and literally those kids, I can toss them, hold them under, do whatever, and they literally just, like, come to the top and keep swimming. And uh, we had our neighbor kids come over, and they, like, were kind of in the water, and all of a sudden I was, like, watching them do it, and the kids got all nervous. And they're like, mom, he's trying to hurt them. And they were like, we're fine. So it's like <laughs> that same mentality from the time we trained was this idea of like, why are you lifting weights? You know, right. what's the fundamental reason for training? Well, I'm not only, I'm, I'm doing this for performance, but I'm also doing this to put on enough bulk size strength and whatever so that I can survive the task in front of me and I can get out and come home safe. And I think uh, with strength and conditioning for football players, they don't talk about that enough. Like, like, mm -hmm. you know, they almost need to be like, Hey, we're going to create a, you know, my, my buddy used to joke, uh, my buddy Rick used to call it uh, uh, building a meat suit. He's like, man, it's like, it's like you got to put on all this muscle and size and strength and build, you know, yeah. you know, ligaments, tendons, Wolf's Law, whatever you want to talk about, uh, to be able to go out and effectively use your weapon and come home safe. And, um, you know, to me, that uh, was really, really meaningful and surprisingly something I've not really heard that people ever really talk about. So. Oh, yeah. No, it's a big deal. You know, it's, it's interesting to say that with the, uh, you know, as far as the, the trap training and neck and things like that, there's a uh, guy out of Australia who's doing a lot of really good things, Brendan Appleby. And uh, he works with a lot of rugby league players. And that's one of the main strategies that they take is really trying to develop that next strength. And, you know, subsequently we've, we've done that with our uh, men's and women's soccer players as well. Cause you know, taking headers and things like that, you know, it, it tends to be an issue. So, you know, I think that's, that's the other good thing is, you know, we see a lot of these things happening in, in practice and in the, the real world. And, you know, there's a lot of really good research starting to come from that as far as taking proactive measures, you know, with um, helmet technology. Um, I can't remember which Virginia school it is, but, uh, you know, they got one of the leading, you know, concussion uh, studies going on in the world right now looking at, you know, how to make helmets safer for, for kids to utilize and for, uh, you know, collegiate and professional athletes. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of really, really cool stuff that's going on to, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, trying to make people more bulletproof when they're out there, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, slippery slope, man. Cool. What, uh, I mean, what's behind the scenes? So, out here, kind of on the outskirts, we know ACL – injury prevention now into concussion injury prevention like what's on the edge that we haven't yet heard of that we should be on the lookout for oh man that's a great question you know I, th I think really those are some of the biggest ones that we faced I think it's not so much um the what but the how you know I think a lot of people now have really gravitated to more of a movement-based approach um with their strength conditioning work and you know really trying to make sure that we have a good base of movement uh, before we start overloading the system, you know, because I mean, fundamentally, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have somebody, you know, squat a heavy weight if they can't do it with their own body weight first. You know, so I think a lot of it is, you know, when you guys talk about retro engineering earlier and things like that, a lot of it is going back to the fundamentals and trying to you know, make sure that, you know, we do the basics exceptionally well before we start getting more advanced. Um, you know, one, one of the things that we'll see, you know, at the division two level, a lot of the athletes that we have, um, from a skill perspective, they're very good at their sport-specific skills. What we see is that they have some deficiency in their movement patterns. You know, so you know, that's what I joke about. Is a lot of times I'm more or less a glorified PE teacher. 
you know, because that's the big thing is like, you know, just teach them how to lunge, how to squat, how to push, how to pull, how to stabilize their trunk and torso. And it was really funny. Uh, we're, I was working with the soccer team a couple of weeks ago and we had a young lady who um, after about, you know, 10, she, she accelerates pretty well, but after 10 meters, you know, she gets in that position where she's got, you know, pronated shoulders, the arms across the body. She's leaned too far forward. And, uh, you know, I pulled her aside. I said, honey, you know, these are the things I need you to work on for me. And uh, she goes, yeah, you know, my coaches always told me I ran really weird. I'm like, okay, well, what, what kind of feedback did they give you? What did they tell you to do? They said, we'll stop running weird. I'm like, okay, well, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's yeah. my favorite coaching cue. That if actually, it works, no, that, yeah. but sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> I need you to stop moving like a weirdo. Oh. Yeah, stop, stop doing that. Well, I don't know how to stop doing that. So a lot of it is just going back in and teaching them basic mechanics. And, you know, and like we said before, it's like a lot of it's not sexy, but it's just really trying to ingrain those motor patterns and programs and, you know, making it where it's automatic to where they don't have to think about it. Automatic. So I think, I think that's the big thing that we're seeing is a lot more emphasis on that movement based approach and really trying to develop good foundational skills before we start getting as sport specific with them. Yeah, we're right there with you. We just found a, a huge deficiency in people's ability to one lunge and two perform a step up everything out. That's on kind of the, the private sector. Is all yeah, squats. We can find millions of Instagram pages dedicated to the squad. Right. But and social media, you know, we have, you know, squats and milk and deadlifts and dildos and, you know, everything, <laughs> but we can't find anything about step ups or lunges. So yeah. we've, we've taken it upon ourselves to really reintroduce the basics of the step up and the lunge. Yeah. Gradually work towards combining squats, lunges and step ups. So what you're saying is that maybe there's benefit in training unilateral movements. Maybe that's just not bilateral hip hinging. Absolutely. Amazing. <laughs> the majority of sports are played on one leg. And yeah. it's, not a, yeah, it's not necessarily rocket surgery, but, you know, it's <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, And that's, that's the thing is – That might be the best quote I've heard. <laughs> this isn't rocket surgery. Right. But, you know, that's with, with our uh, women's soccer team, for instance. Again, great group of girls. As far as from a movement perspective, I would say they're about as dialed in as they can get. Initially, though, a lot of it was just that foundation movement and trying to establish that. So when we started our strength conditioning program, we were doing Bulgarian squats with them or that, you know, rear foot elevated split squat. Because what we were seeing is when they were trying to load bilaterally, again, the movement pattern just fell apart. So we ended up taking them back to a single leg, trying to reduce bilateral deficit, and, and really trying to groove that out first to give them the strength base to, you know, start accepting heavier loads and things like that later. And, you know, right now, I would say with some degree of certainty, I could throw almost any exercise at them, and the majority of them are going to be pretty proficient at it. But, you know, like we were talking about before, the first season I worked with them, uh, now granted, I started with them in season. Um, we were doing uh, we were doing Bulgarians push-ups, TRX rows, and uh, some core work. So it was nothing sophisticated whatsoever. But you know, as we progressed over the years, you know, now we're using you know, heck, tendo units, velocity-based training. We're using monitoring systems. But you know, that's the thing is we had to get those foundational movements you know grooved out first. And you know, I, I, it's it's one of those things, you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like long-term athlete development model and, you know, some of the different uh, movements that are out there like that, you know, it, it, that tends to be one of those that's a little bit controversial for some people because say, Hey, you know, there's not enough research out there necessarily support it or refute it. But, you know, I think if you look at it from a coaching perspective, it follows a really good natural progression and it makes a lot of intuitive sense. And kind of like John was saying earlier, like, you know, the two of the 
first things they say that all kids start off with is, you know, some kind of gymnastics and swimming, yeah. you know, so they get that good idea, you know, body position awareness, and they get those general skill sets to be better specialized at what they do later. And for, uh, Steve, for us, it was, uh, I, in, in my own idea, I wanted uh, something that was different orientation, like something <laughs> like swimming where they were down in water, which was a change in orientation. I wanted something that was body awareness. So like gymnastics and then uh, something like stick and ball, their ability to have eye, uh, hand-eye coordination, be able to hit Absolutely. Something. And then something that involves sliding, like either surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, something like that. So for my little girls, uh, you know, balance riding the bike, they skateboard, uh, swimming, gymnastics, and then uh, just being able to work and like, you know, kick a ball, hit different things. But uh, the one thing I'm really kind of a little leery on is uh, team sports at, at a young age. So, like, everything we're doing is very individualized, like gymnastics and, uh, uh, like, swimming and different things where it's just them against, you know, the clock, whatever it is. Because, uh, uh, like, having seen my nephew and seeing the state of organized sports and, and parents, uh, I was kind of like, oh, God. You want to deal with the crew? I don't even want to deal with this. Because, uh, but that's Newport Beach, well, too. Because I know what will happen. I'll get pissed. And then I'll have to do it. And next thing you know, I'll be coaching like five teams because uh, I, I don't tell because I, I don't trust any motherfuckers. And then the parents are going to be asking me, "Well, don't you think?" I'll be like, "Seriously, I don't need to throw trump cards at you, but I'm going to fucking play." And, yeah, and you know, so, and, and I'll be honest with you, John, I have a really hard time with that too because, <laughs> <I> still, <laughs> and it is one of those things where I I try to keep a respectful distance, but there's sometimes I'm like, "Yeah, no, you're not doing that." Yeah, especially yeah. like with, with so my son and daughters have played you know baseball, softball. Um, they've done the uh, flag football. They've done lacrosse, uh, soccer, and, and each time you know there's little things that I'm like, yeah, I can't let that one 100 percent go. And, yeah. and so and everybody like I, I think I've been the assistant coach on practically every darn team they've been on because yeah. like you said, I don't want the responsibility of head coach. But at the same time, I want to have some control. There's nothing better, yeah. than, there's nothing better than assistant coach. A parent, because I, I coach some pop corner, and there's some crazy parents, and I'd just be like, let me get head coach for you. And uh, my buddy would just be like, you son of a bitch. But he was a PR. <laughs> his, like, specialty. Well, that's uh, – uh, the assistant coach role is actually what I call being a dad uh, when you're yeah. young. Like, uh, my wife's the head coach. I just <laughs> – <laughs> time i'm like you're the head coach i'm the assistant coach just give me like give me the playbook i'm just watching you because i don't know what the fuck i'm doing you know well and it, it's funny like so my when we were back when we were at corpus christi my son he so he was five and we we're playing t-ball and even at that rate they were actually going through the process of kind of playing the game i'm like you know i play baseball it's a fairly complicated sport mm -hmm. as far as if you get into the minutiae of all of it and, you know, so they're five. And, of course, it's like herding cats the whole time. There's literally – one day there was a kid out at second base, and he grabbed a handful of dirt. And I walk over, and I'm like, Juan, you need to put the dirt down. And he goes, I'm going to lick it. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, as a parent, this is not my finest moment, but I go, I bet you won't. <laughs> so, you never say I'm a four-year-old. Four-year-old boy. Right. Oh, he hammered it. It was awesome. But nonetheless, so the one of the dads came up later, and he's talking about my son, who, again, is five at that point. He goes, you know, he's a pretty good player. You know, the Sun Belt League is the one that's a little bit more competitive. You need to look at that. I'm like, dude, he's five. Yeah. Like, he, he may be like his old man in peak early. Like, I'm not, like, <laughs> signing a pro contract yet. So, but and I think that's the thing is, like, it's, it's one of those things where, obviously, as parents, it's hard to not you know it, your kids are obviously an extension of yourself to some extent and it's hard to be able to check that and go okay this is a process for them they've got to go through this they 
they need to learn some skills, have some fun, and you know, get that good, you know, base of motoric uh, movement that they're going to need to be successful in other sports later. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's the, one of the big challenges, you know, if you look at coaching, it, it's kind of that inverted pyramid where, you know, at the little league level, you got a lot of really, really great people who are, you know, donating their time, their energy, their effort. And I, my genuine belief is most coaches, you know, that are parents are, you know, out there trying to do the best they can for the kids but they don't have the training background to understand the coaching process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so what do they do? They, you know, they go look at the programs that the, the Broncos are doing or what the Colts yeah. are doing. And then they try and implement that at like an eight year old peewee level. It's like, you know, it's, they're not at that stage yet. And yeah, they're trying I think to that's the, the challenge. Offense. Yeah. They're, they're like, let's run the West coast offense. We're going to have goes, you know, we're right. going right. to play cover two. Don't worry about it. We're going to blitz every third down. And, you know, we're going to do yeah, hot, right. route. Hot, yeah. Route. Hot, hot route. route. Right, and that's the funny thing. You know, and ironically, if you look at it, you know the coaches who you know, at the pro level, like, I mean, they got to be very good from a technical tactical standpoint. But from that like basic movement skill development standpoint, you need guys who have that experience at that lower level. And, and quite frankly, it make the job at the top much easier. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it's it's one of things like how much talent do you lose out on because they don't have those those coaches available so right. you know i think that's i think you know long term wise i can see us moving closer to that in the future you know um you know other can you know canada the uk uh, australia they've all gone to that long-term athlete development model and having coaching systems i can see us doing that and you know for them it, it's one of those things where you know they have to develop talent and they don't have the luxury of having the numbers that we have you know i mean that's the one thing about america is like you know everybody comes here you know, so we're deep as far as our selection pool. And, you know, hey, if this kid doesn't make it, well, we got another 50 in the background who are probably almost as good. Mm-hmm. You know, so for those countries that, you know, struggle to have the numbers, like they got to be a lot more dialed in with those processes. And, you know, I, I've been seeing, you know, a really interesting movement to that of, as of lately. You know, NSCA, they just put out a position statement on LTAD, which is awesome. Um, if you guys don't have access to it, hit me up. I'll make sure you guys can get some access to it. Um, the, another really great one that I believe is free online is uh, USA Hockey. Oh. They have their American uh, American Development Model. Um, that was you know Isvan Bali and you know some of the world's leading authorities on LTD helped put that together. Uh, a gentleman named uh, Ken Martell uh, is the guy who's really in charge of that at USA Hockey, and they just do an amazing job of getting that information out there. But I can see in the next decade or so uh, us getting a lot more hit to that and really trying to. Um, you know, develop people who are going to be not only active for life, but competitive for life at right. you know, those younger levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's essentially, uh, you know, John and I have a, a <laughs> there, it's not necessarily long, I mean, it's long-term development, but not necessarily for athletics, but it's for, for his son. How are we going to create the super bro? Right, the guy who, you know, is on a mission, missionary, uh, like a, a mission trip in South Africa, building mud huts, adobe mud huts for the the uh, the tribes down there. And the bus breaks down, and he can fix the diesel motor uh, with the shirt off, shredded, and then he finds a ukulele and serenades all the the local women. <laughs> and yeah, he on. climbs a tree, and he's able to collect local fruit, mm-hmm. uh, whittle something, hunt something, yep. and they cook an amazing five star meal for everybody. Yeah, that no, actually prevents cancer at the same yeah. time. Yeah, 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 the, uh, the fuck this guy model. Where every other every other dude's like, fuck this guy. Oh, here he comes. He's singing John Mayer. What's this guy's deal? Cash. 
So I guess it starts <laughs> with gymnastics and swimming, though, right? Uh, well, it, it, it's that whole thing where uh, well, it's a crawl yeah. shoot is where it starts. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. we, we absolutely on that the rolling, and then uh, uh, I, I also have this. Uh, I've been testing another theory, which is uh, about um, uh, ocular physical orientation. So like forcing him to do like cross body touches. Uh -huh. So like we'll do like right hand, left leg. We'll do that. And then we'll go to the other one. And then I roll him over and I've been doing like different positions, like spinning them and doing it different ways. So like, and then I put, hold them upside down and like let him try to orient. I don't know. I'm just, so I'm, it, it's totally off the reservation. And the best part though, is I have my wife on board. So all of a sudden I'll look over and she'll be doing it. I'll be like, yes. She'll <laughs> you know like, what, man? It realistically can't hurt. You know, honestly, man, I'll give you guys a great drill to run with your athletes. A buddy of mine, Mick Steerly out of uh, Australia, he's a sergeant down there in the New South Wales Police, but also works with the uh, Bulldogs rugby team. So the simplest drill, but there's a very complex reason for it. So what you do is you actually have people lay down on their backs, and they've got one minute to a minute and a half to get up as many different ways as possible. Hmm. However, the challenge is, is once they've done it one way, that yeah. gets Away, you can't do it again. So basically, what it does is you start creating movement constraints, and they basically have to go back up to that motor cortex of the brain and go, okay, this is the motor program that I've got to execute to do the same task, but in a different manner. So, you know, that that's we'll do it with all our athletes, and it's super simple. And you know, that's what I tell them first. Like, you know what? And, and the awesome thing is they're laughing, they're you know having a good time, and they don't understand that there's a lot more going on there. And that's you know that's the thing we always try and preach to our coach is that you know have simple things that have very complicated rationales for them so Jay, then what's what like as you evaluate that is there a matrix you're evaluating or is it just no, to I, I think it's just creativity like yeah. uh, as you yep. I'm thinking like all right so you lay on your back you flip over to your stomach uh you get up as one then you're like you get up you're doing a ninja roll back up rise, like a back roll up you, you could yep, exactly you, you could stand up you could do a forward roll to a Kip roll. up if you're you athletic enough back. like me the, uh, yeah, that has happened good. before you can, do that, uh, you can do the break dancer where you like swing your leg no, and you spin could. it open and you do <laughs> together. I mean, yeah, and, that, and the cool thing is, and you get to see all that stuff. And I joke, I was like, man, you know what, to some extent, it's like Burger King. You can have it your way. That's do right. it however you want to do it. Just do it, but you can't do it more than twice. Mm -hmm. I like it. Or more than once, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, yeah. And that's the cool thing about it is like they start delving into those different movement patterns. And the funny thing is the first time they do the drill, a lot of them get about 30 seconds into it, and you just see them freeze. and like, uh, I'm out of ideas. I'm like, not good enough. Figure something out. Yeah. And yeah. then the more we start integrating it, the more they start figuring out and doing different things and getting you know higher scores. And the, the thing is, is, like from a mobility standpoint, a stability standpoint, you know, as John was talking about, that cross-extensive reflex and trying to coordinate different movement patterns, you know, it's a lot of those things that they haven't done since they were kids. Right. But – you know, because and, and the fun thing, it is silly, and they do have a good time with it. But again, the rationale is a lot more complicated than just lay down and get up. And well, that's what I was. That's what I joke with. I was like, man, fifteen years of higher education it gets down to lay on the floor and get up. You hit something really on the head that I observe from watching my kids is um, they never sit on the furniture. Uh, it, uh, it, yeah, it, it's universal. Like this is it, it's one of those weird observations that I noticed it, and, and even at the point like um, uh, we sold our house and uh, we were renting a place before we moved, and uh, the house has got like, a big table and it got like a built-in nook, and then they have this long bench. Uh, my daughters never sit at the bench; they actually stand on the bench and they squat, like in a squatted position, and they eat from this squatted position. And I like watch them, and like I I, I don't encourage any of this stuff. Like yeah. like. Yeah. Uh, 
And then whenever I watch them play or do anything, they're always are like sitting or laying or doing something on the floor that never involves a couch, a chair, or sitting. They either are like laying on the floor, laying on the bed, playing, sitting this, like they don't need, like they never sit and they never use furniture. And I, I like, I, I honestly wonder, I told my wife, I'm like, what if we got rid of every piece of furniture in the house? It was just like a table or different things. And she's like, honestly, I don't think these kids would notice. Yeah. She's like, I'm pretty sure we put like uh, uh, bars or rings on the ceiling and the walls. They would probably try to swing around the yeah. house and not use their feet. Uh, it, it's the Dude, weird, that sounds awesome. Actually, it, it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's the weirdest observation that uh, they don't ever use furniture. And even on that, because it's like this huge bench. And I asked them, I'm like, why don't you guys sit on the bench? They're like, it's not comfortable to because the the bench is so wide and their legs are so short, and they also don't like their feet not touching. So they just straight up just sit in like a I guess a squat, a, like an Asian squat. Yeah, yeah. They just literally sit there and they eat. And then I asked them, I'm like, what about a uh, fine motor using uh um, utensils and they're like it doesn't seem fun to use utensils <laughs> it's like more fun and i was like okay i'm cool with you eating with your hands i'm like but you you're raising the- animals john well, <laughs> girls are never, never gonna find so the there was a uh rob wolf forwarded me this article this morning which was uh outside or i think it was brewer uh outside magazine about uh how to raise uh your daughters to not be this like apologetic female where like, yeah. you know, because, and then, and I've seen parents do this like your, uh, all the time for some reason when you have daughters, and I'm sure you've seen this too, like if they stumble and fall, people like over coddle the kids mm-hmm. because they're girls. And, uh, actually to the point where now I've under coddled them to where like they'll turf it or they fall down and we're in the airport and I'm walking and they're like taking their bags and they like fall down. Yeah. The kids just like, like breathe. I'm like, get the fuck up. And, uh, <laughs> and like, oh my God, this, and, you know, then I'm like, get away from them. Don't help them. Come yeah. on, let's go. Helping is hurting. Yeah. Helping and, can be hurting. Right? Well, it, but it, it's, it's, it's really, uh, just interesting when you see how kind of boys are raised where it's like, oh, let's go outside and eat some dirt. Do you want to have a tea party? Yeah. And I'm like this, I'm like dirty monkeys, go outside. Monkeys belong outside. And I shut the door on them. <laughs> and then I look at them Fighting the dog. Yeah, peeling their clothes off. Oh, yeah, they like, uh, <laughs> they, uh, they just, because I, I have twin daughters, which is, is pretty hilarious. So they, uh, they somehow get together and they come up with these ideas. And they're like, today is going to be a bikini day. And I'm like, oh, you guys are going to wear bikinis? They're like, yeah. So I left today and they were, uh, uh, that's all they were going to wear today. And then they get on the trampoline. And so they're jumping on the trampoline. And then I, I have two dogs, my pit bulls get on the trampoline with them. And then they have like fucking, Wrestle match. It's like a, a like a Beyond Thunderdome with the pit bulls in this thing, and they're, they're battling the dogs. And I'm like, yeah, dude, that I just just I, so I got two daughters as well. I, I do have to tell you, I always do hope they grow out of that stage where they're in bikinis, like wrestling on a trampoline. I'm like, um, this may not be. <laughs> That's what I told my wife. As long as it's not an occupation, I then okay. Yeah. But. That's what I told my wife. I'm like, they're getting ready for college, like next week. They're like, we got bikinis, we're wrestling dogs. I'm like, <laughs> This is this is my life, dude. I uh, but yeah, the uh, it, it's just it's a funny observation how people treat their daughters. Like it's That's almost it. like people are so like you know like little China dolls in this point. I'm like. No well, and that's, you know, and that's one of the things, it's funny, around our house, I mean, Pump Up Princess gets said a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and it is one of those things where, like you said before, like, a lot of the athletes that I'll work with, unfortunately, you can tell when they've had that coddling, because, you know, they'll come there and say, like, oh, God, I'm really hurt from yesterday's workout. I'm like, okay, are you hurt or are you sore? Well, I don't know. It just it, It's really tender when I sit down. I'm like, okay, so it's not an injury pain, it's a sore pain, like. 
well, I just don't know. And it's like, you know, they need to be able to differentiate between that. And a lot of times we literally have to take them back. Like, again, are you sore or are you injured? And there is a major difference between the two. And, and we don't, we, yeah, we don't do a lot of coddling, but, you know, obviously you're aware of it, but, you know, you can't let them get away with stuff either because then nobody gets better. Right, right. But, uh, everybody walks all over you, so. Yeah. But, no, it is interesting. Like, yeah, with, with our daughters, we're very much the same way. And uh, I mean, they—it's it, very much equal treatment in our house. So, <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, it's you said that too. Like my son the other day, like he's uh, working on some math problems. And he's literally sitting on his head and doing like the vision problems. I'm like, dude, I, how how are you focusing? He's like, it's just easier for me to think this way. I'm like, yeah. go get him, man. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's weird. Like my uh, uh, one of the best things was um, we uh, DVR the gymnastics for the Olympics. And mm-hmm. so we would watch it, and then my daughters go put on their gymnastics outfits, and they're trying to lie, or the little leotards, and they're trying to do the movements like yeah. the entire time. And my wife and I are watching them, and she's and like my uh, my son's like, you know, just watching them, and I'm like, oh god, I'm like, here he is, just watching the Disaster Sisters all day. <laughs> like you know, just fine. I'm, I'm like, uh, honestly, I, and I'm sure you do. You see the same thing. You could. I, they they should have a uh, like a TV show, some form of like a Price is Right for uh, kids, where I for my my kids to be competitive in this. You could put them into a clean situation and see how fast they could absolutely fuck up that destroy place. destroy it. Like uh, like 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 we clean up everything, wake up and like within like I'll turn around, I'll go in, I'll come back, and I'll be like, did a bomb go off in here? What oh, yeah. papers? Why is there? Why are crayons crushed? How did you like? Wow! I'm like, I'll, I'll, I'm like, well, that, and, and they're like, yeah, no, man. It, yeah. It's funny, like, there's some place in our house, like, okay, this is literally like a petting zoo. Like, what have you done here? That I mean, yeah, <laughs> you I, walk in, it's just destroyed and it smells. Yeah. I'm like, why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> That's why I call them the monkeys. I'm like, you guys are like monkeys at the zoo. You just <laughs> everything, and then I was when I'm like, everything get broken. I'll like clean it up. I'm like, where are you? Taking? I'm like, That's why we can't have nice things. So I take. Yep. It. Oh, <laughs> uh, they are, yeah. But yeah, the joy is having children. So one day you guys will have kids. And if you have any questions, I'll loan you mine. Sure. It's birth control. Those things are easy. Just push them in the pool. Oh, yeah. Drop, Go have a beer. Have a beer. <laughs> yeah. Bar, bar, <laughs> bubble water. So, yeah. Well, hey, Jay, man, it's um, time flies. I'll tell you what, it was awesome having you on. And I appreciate you uh, appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. You yeah, know, thank you very much. For, Jay, quick question. Is this podcast yes, eligible for CEUs for me? I'm just, just curious. Uh, you know what? You don't have to take that up with the NSCA as far as <laughs> but there is a process, a peer review process that they'll go through. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, so there, that's the assistance of being kind of the, the vice president, right? You just pass it up. Uh, there you go. It's all about delegation. Uh, Jay, if, if people, I mean, where do you want to encourage some people who are listening to this? Where do you want to, where do you want to channel them to? You know what, man, as far as uh, different resources that are out there, you know, obviously the National Strength Conditioning Association is a great resource to go through. Um, you know, I actually do some consulting with a group called Elite Sports University that has some phenomenal opportunities for learning as well. And, uh, you know, again, there's so many great resources that are extensions off the NSCA and so many great people to, to follow. Um, again, those are going to be some of the best resources out there to really help people advance professionally. And then do you yourself uh, carry a following on social media or anything, or are you just kind of a Oz behind the scenes? You know what, man? So I got a Facebook page. I got a Twitter page and, or Twitter account, and I don't do a whole lot on social media. If people have questions, I'm more than happy to respond to it. 
a lot of times it's one of the things I don't think people necessarily want to know it unless they ask me. So I'm more than happy to respond to anything. So. Okay, cool, cool. Well, well what, would, what should they look for in terms of if they want to find you on Twitter? So on Twitter, it's just going to be uh, jdaws76. Sounds good. And we'll link all this stuff up to uh, your Facebook as well. We'll track you down um, in, in the show notes. But again, thanks, Jay. And, uh, you know, have a great weekend. And, and we'll connect in the future, I'm sure. Absolutely. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Right. you. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Find Jay Dawes on Twitter at jdaws76, or you can plug him into Facebook and follow his page. Jay does consulting for Elite Sports University and can be found leading and delegating like a boss as vice president of the NSCA. Remember that our Toes 4 challenge is running until September 18th. That's plenty of time to Instagram a pic of your hooves doing something, anything, parallel and toes forward. Tag and hashtag PowerAtheHQ and Toes Forward for your chance to win $3,000 worth of swag and prizes. So what are you waiting for? Get creative, dress up your feet with your best shoe flare, or strip down those tootsies for a tasteful nude. Just know that the competition is fierce and winning will be no small feat. Until next time, bye!